I actually had a billet to go SEALs when I graduated. So there's at the Naval Academy you have service selection night, which is I think January or something like that of your senior year. And I'd gone through the qualification and I had a billet and um I ended up turning it I ended up turning it down. And um it was because I was just scared of heights. Like petrified. Um and it was having to jump out of an airplane. Like literally you put like I just scared. And it was enough that I didn't go. Um and Fast forward, I and you hear people talk about it now, like oh, like you hear Bezos talk about oh, live a life with no regret, all that stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Well, back when I was twenty two, twenty three, I knew that I'd have regrets if I didn't try. I'm like, you cannot let your fears. I, I cannot let my fears stop me from doing this because I will regret. And then I was shooting with my best friend Chris. We were shooting with their brother, his brothers, etc. And this was, um about six months after graduating from the Naval Academy. And I was, and I kind of made a comment like, oh, I was going to go, but and I was like, oh my gosh, I hate people that do that. Like someone says, oh, I was going to do, I was going to become an Ava SEAL, but, or anything else. And so, and sure, there's some people that go through buds and they get broken. And, and so understandable all that stuff. You have to respect the people that at least put their toe on the line and gave it a shot. Right. As opposed to never trying, but always falling back on, I was going to, but. Right. And so I was like, one of the things I hated came out of my mouth. Because when I was in the wardroom early on in my first ship, someone, someone said, oh, I was going to go, but. I'm like, don't say that. Keep your mouth shut. So don't puff your chuffs up. You didn't do it. So don't bring it up in conversation. So, um, so when I said it. I was like pretty disappointed in myself. Um, I was like, I gotta go. So I don't, I don't want to be that guy that I, that I didn't respect. Welcome back everybody. I'm joined this week by Jeff Engel. Jeff served nine years in the SEAL teams and got out as a Lieutenant. After transitioning out, he went to work for IBM spent several years there learning the technology sector. Then in 2020, he got the opportunity to purchase his own company. Today, he's the CEO of Location Tech. And amongst other things, they offer mobile panic solutions and electronic asset tracking. He's got a lot of good advice for transitioning veterans. So let's get into it. Here's episode 118 with Jeff Engel. We always look like goofballs. Don't worry about it. So it's, it, <laughs> I, I, I've come to, I've come to, to, uh, realize that sometimes you just have to go, uh, ah, it is what it is. Right. Wow. I think there's a lot, a lot to that for when you're transitioning is coming to that perspective. Um, that it is what it is. Dropping the ego and just being a person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's an understatement. Um, so, well, let's m- take it easy. Let's go backwards before we go forward. Where's hometown for you? Where'd you grow up? Grew up in Sacramento, California. Um, what was great about Sacramento is I was an hour and a half from skiing. That's what people say about Sacramento. <laughs> hour and a half from skiing um, and an hour and a half to San Francisco. But if you never go to San Francisco, take it out. Thing. I, but anyways, everyone said it's a great place because it's centrally loca- located everything. Um, I don't know. I, I thought Sacramento was okay. 
great. I mean, I appreciate growing up there. Um, appreciate I was able to, I was able to go skiing with my dad and, and my sister and uh, my my friends from high school. Um, so it was a great city to grow up in. But my heart was always in the water, especially the the ocean in particular. Uh, from like a surfing aspect or swimming aspect? Um, I grew up swimming. Um, and it's kind of ironic how I grew up swimming, but it was, the pool is where we always hung out as kids. And so early on when I was like six or six years old, I started swimming. Everyone in the neighborhood swam on a team, swam. And then probably about seven, when I was seven years old, I came to my mom. I was like, ah, mom, swimming sucks. (laughs) Didn't say quite like that, but I, I don't want to swim anymore. The rigidity of the training? Um, no, just rather take some work. <laughs> uh, no, it was, um, it just, you had to just show up every day. Right. And she's like, no problem. You don't have to swim, but you have to do something over the summer. And so the other option, summer school. I'm like, hmm, what's worse? Play in the pool all day or sit behind books all yeah. day? So summer school. And then, but I literally was like, well, let's see. Summer school is, it's, it's, 20 minute to ride my bike there. And then class is probably 45 minutes and do two of them. It was an hour and a half and swim practice 45 minutes. It's less time. So it's less time doing a thing that sucks. So I, I kind of chuckle, but that's how I've made a lot of my decisions. It's well, that sucks less. Um, so that sounds like it should be on the cover of a book or a motto or something. Well, I, uh, so we may talk about it later on, but I remember when I was going through buds during hell week and, um, and the professor, or sorry, the instructors, uh, would sit there on the beach and we were, and we'd be there shivering and we're cold and they're like, Hey, Lieutenant Engel, you know, you could quit right now and get some warm donuts and a cup of coffee. If you went on and you could be on that ship. I bet you it's warm out there. Cause there's a ship got that cruise. And I just chuckled cause I was, Prior to going to being a seal, I was a swell. I was on ships. I was like, huh. I've been there, done that. I'd much rather be getting paid to work out <laughs> and get hammered than be on a ship. I'm not knocking being on a ship. I spent a lot of time on the ships afterwards, but it's tough. <laughs> so anyways, it sucked a little less being being hammered by instructors than being on the being on the mid watch and rotation. So um, but so started out, grew up in Sacramento. Swam. Was your family generational in Sacramento or have they been there? Like mom and dad been there all their lives? No. Um, LA is where my family originally, my parents originally from, uh, moved up because of a job and, uh, we are in Southern California now. So I feel it's safer to say this now, but they just kind of wanted a different lifestyle for my sister and me growing up. And so I wasn't, I was born in Sacramento, but my parents, uh, my sister, I think she was already, already born, moved up, had an opportunity for the job. And so he was, work, my dad was working in, in LA area. He had an opportunity to come to San Diego for a job in San Diego. Wish he'd taken it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but then ended up taking a job in Sacramento and then he had his, his whole career in Sacramento from then on. And so, um, so that's where I grew up and appreciate growing up in Sacramento because all the, na- we knew all the neighbors, we all hung out to each other. I remember 4th of July was and probably my favorite holiday. Um, because there was six or six, seven families that we get together and we'd have a barbecue and hang around the pool and we'd make homemade ice cream and do fireworks. And it was great. 
Um, and that's something I think as a kid, I really appreciated growing up in Sacramento. So I could, so in the beginning, I kind of said, well, Sacramento is one what's so exciting about it, but, but the, just the, the, the families were fantastic there. So grateful, lucky for the neighborhood. What time period are we talking about? Uh, about a, 200 years ago. Okay. Um, no, I, so that was uh, late seventies. Okay. Um, is when I was a kid. So I was born in sixties. Got it. And as far as academics or in school as a young man, did you enjoy school? Was it a, a struggle for you? <laughs> school is horrific. <laughs> so no, I, I can, I can now, I think publicly admit that even though I did go to a, a good college. Uh, I was fortunate to get into a good college um, and graduated. Uh, no, school is really tough for me. Like mentally, or it, it did not sink in. Um, I had a really hard time paying attention in class. It would go in one year and out the other. Um, uh, I was the king of shop classes. So I took five years of wood shop through junior, through middle school and high school. I think I took a year of auto shop and, took a small gas engine. So I was, I had my skills, um, but academics was not, was not a strength of mine per se. I was much more comfortable being physical. So even in high school, um, when I had free time, I wasn't swimming, I'd ride my bike and, or if I was bored, I'd go for a run. That's all I did. Any other organized sports? So swam competitively, um, played soccer younger, um, was okay at soccer, but I was really okay at it. Like I'd strongly emphasize not great, <laughs> but it was cause I was in such go- good swimming shape. I was pretty good athlete. Um, but I, but you know, we, we, before we talked about kind of, we talked about kind of being humble and all that stuff. So, um, my mom used to always say, I'm like, gosh, you're so humble at, at the time when I was 10, was it 10 and 12, 10, I would have, my, my time had, I think my time had been put in, but I think I was, would have been ranked number two in the nation or number one in the nation swimming and sprint freestyle. And then when I was 12, I was ranked number one in the nation and 53, I think third and a hundred and then third and butter, hundred, hundred butterfly. Um, but I kind of like, I had this weird thing. Like, I kind of thought that was normal. Uh, but what I do think is I do think everyone has something that they can be better than everyone else is. And it just happened to be young, young age. I was, it was the activity that sucked less than school. So I kept doing it and I just kept falling into this thing. And then when I was about 14, I really wanted out of swimming, but I was least smart enough or wise enough to recognize like, you're not great in school. You can swim pretty well. So if you want to go to college, you better keep swimming because that's going to, that's going to get you in because you're in, and it ended up working out. So after high school, I'm going to prep school, which was very valuable because it kind of got, it, it, it got my brain working right academically. Got me to figure out, cause I'd really never studied before. I didn't know how to study. Um, I didn't, I, I couldn't read more than two or three pages without stop reading. And I, I couldn't tell you what I read for the first three pages and, and everything was fine. I just, just wasn't able to do it well. Um, and so going to prep school was very helpful. I went to prep school in Santa Barbara. Um, and then was accepted into the Naval Academy and, um, just things kind of 
I don't want to say lucky, but just kind of kept falling into the right place, right time. So, but a lot of it came to came to my parents just saying, well, fine, you don't have to do anything, but you got to do something. And so I just kept kept pushing me down this road, pushing myself down the road. When you were, you mentioned being ranked nationally, top 10, top five, top three. In your mind or at the time, did you recognize how good of a swimmer you were? Did it come easy for you or was it something you felt you were working at to be better than the others? Um, it's actually a really good question. So it came naturally to me. Um, there was another gentleman uh, by the name of Keith Frostad. Uh, I, at the time, I was better than him. And, and, and he was a distance swimmer and distance is, is much different than being a sprinter. I mean, distance, you got to put the work in, like, like you can't slack off, but being a sprinter, a lot of times you can, you can muscle your way through it. And I was, I was, I would muscle my way through, through the water and meaning I can fast twitch muscles and just go and get out and you're done. Or being a distance swimmer, you gotta work. Like it is, you're putting yourself in a lot of pain. So sprint pain painful for for thirty less than thirty seconds, or less than fifty seconds of hundred, and distance you're going forever. So it came naturally to me. I didn't see that it came naturally to Keith as much. But the guy went to the Olympics, and he was in the finals. So I didn't go to the Olympics. So it's a good example of you're not always going to be number one at a certain point, but if you put in the work, you can be. And Keith is a good example of that. And so like, I remember even back then, um, when I was younger, I was like, I don't know what the heck Keith's doing. Like you can't make any money at swimming. You can't do that. And, but he did it. And so I think early on, I was probably more focused on money, which I wouldn't say is necessarily a great thing. So could I have gone to the Olympics? I will never say that I could have gone to the Olympics. Cause that's also one of my pet peeves is when I hear people saying, Oh, I could have gone Navy SEAL, <laughs> but my arm doesn't, didn't do this. And, um, so, um, so it came naturally to me. I didn't put the work into it. The reason why I asked is I, I go back to what you said, where 10 years old, even to mommy, like, Hey, I don't like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I wonder if part of it was because it came so natural for you that there wasn't the challenge of it. And if, if you get into the water and it comes natural to you and you're beating everybody, then where's the motivation to wanting to stay with it? Does that kind of make sense? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Cause I, I don't think I, I, hmm. Yeah, well, I'm 105 years old now, so it's, I haven't, you probably forgot. I haven't pondered that question <laughs> yet. Uh, so, um, I don't know. Like, I don't, I didn't have a focus on that. I want to be number one in swimming. It was just what you do. So I knew I, I wasn't excelling in, in academics. So it was kind of, it was kind of like my place where I just fit in. And swimming is a lonely sport, even though people say, oh, you're in the pool with 30 other people. Well, you're not really talking to them when you're <laughs> swimming. And in between the five to seven seconds or five to seven seconds rest, you're not really talking because you're kind of like trying to get a breath. And if you are talking, then you're not putting out hard enough. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that, so there was others 
um, like Admiral Tim Gallaudet, who was a classmate at Naval Academy. They, they were just very good at, and Keith, very good at just continuously driving, 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 and pushing hard. I, I think mentally, in swim practice, I had a hard time driving. Like, I was not the fastest guy in swim practice. And there, every so often... Every so often, I would get just this burst of energy, and for like three weeks, like the coach is like, "What the heck happened to you?" Because I would just be killing it in the water, and um, but mentally, I just it was hard for me to push and push and push and push because I think at the time, so when I was, um, but I knew something was important to me. I, I knew it was very important to me. But at the time, um, I really didn't have a way to get to swim practice, but I knew I needed to do it. So I used to ride my bike twenty miles of swim practice. And then I'd swim. This is when I was in 15, 14, 15. I'd ride my bike 20 miles from practice, and I'd swim for two and a half hours, and I'd ride my bike home. And um, and people would say, well, how do you do that? And, and I kind of knew what they were asking. Well, how do you do that energy-wise? To me, it wasn't an energy problem. It was a time problem. And so kind of goes back to the question earlier, like, like, did it push me being ranked number one in the nation or anything else? Like, I, I didn't feel like this. Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, awesome because I'm number one in the nation. It just happened to be where I was placed at the time. Um, but, and there was a point I was going, I went off task, but, or went offside. But but there's, I, I think, um, I don't know, but, so I, I think with anything, it's just put in perspective and keep pushing. But I couldn't push myself hard enough to really get to the next level, just mentally. Um, but I also tell you that there are times when I can. And I think it was finding that niche because um, when I was going through Buds, um, went through with a gentleman by the Derek Van Orden, who's actually a congressman now. And uh, <laughs> whenever we did these these long runs, or these these runs and the going through buds and they were always soft, soft sand etc. And I would always slightly break away from the from off the pack. So you have the main pack, and they do the run, and then the instructors would would the line always stopped right in front of me, and it was and I became part of the goon squad, and I was always in the goon squad, and no matter how hard I tried, <laughs> I could not stay out of the goon squad, and um, and so but. But man, I could I could put out in the goon squad because it was focused. It was a focused thing. It was these races. You'd pick up your buddy or you pick up your your swim buddy and you'd carry you'd do a fireman's carry or you'd do something else or you'd carry it was never just a simple sprint, but it was always something that was a little bit more. And um and Van Van Orden was like, man, you can you you can put out. So I it goes back to I learned how to put out harder. Early on in high school and middle school, I couldn't figure out how to focus or how to put out. Like I was, so, so my natural, I wasn't able to tap into my natural talents. And again, it just happened to be I found my, that I came into my natural talents. I do believe everyone has natural talents. So I, I have a very good friend um, and his son, who I'd also consider a friend, Jack, who um, does have autism. And man, that guy's a talented painter. Like in his art, he does is really good, like really good. And he's does, um, and it's not traditional, um, but he does, he, he has this one painting he did and it's all different names for noses, like snodges, all the stuff. And it's like very creative. And so that's an example of 
Jack's example of someone who, who others would say, hey, he's not number one in swimming. No, he's not. But have you seen his art? Pretty talented. So I, I, I think everyone has these talents. And, and for those, that are, those of us that are lucky enough to find kind of that spot where they can kind of spike forward, it's, um, we're lucky. So you're, you hit the nail on the head when you said you're lucky because you, you made a comment earlier that said, where you said, everybody in my neighborhood swam and I'm, it sounds like swam competitively. I, I look back when I was growing up and yeah, we were in the pool all summer, but there was nothing. It was just whoever's backyard you were in or something like that to, to be in an environment to not only have the opportunity to test that, which a lot of kids don't, right. but to have other friends who went that same pathway. But coming back to what you just said about the young man and the artist, many of us never probably experience what we're truly good at. And that's, un, that's, that's the, the unfair thing about life. Cause it just comes down to what opportunity did you have? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I, <laughs> So yes, earlier about what other sports. So I played baseball. So along with soccer, I was so bad at baseball. (laughs) I was horrible at it. And so that, so, and, and, um, so the funny thing is like when we we went for the hand grenades, I was like, guys, it's going to be short. (laughs) Look out. (laughs) Don't rely on me to throw the hand grenades. So, so it, it was, uh, like, but throwing hand grenades is not a baseball throw, is it? No, it's not. But well, it, but it's still a throwing motion. It it can be because they're shaped like baseballs, right? Like they're intentionally shaped like baseballs, and so and you look at them, it's a green baseball. Um, so sure, you you could throw it, but um, but I can throw a hand grenade on my side as far as I can throw a baseball properly. <laughs> So that gives you an idea of how poor of a throw person I am to throw a ball. Like when my kids and I were playing baseball and are playing catch, they say, Hey, can you move closer? Like, <laughs> I can't throw that far. You might be able to, but I can't. So I just never developed that skill of how to do that. So, uh, so growing up baseball, you, you can play baseball, you can play soccer and swimming. So two sports, one sport, horrific at it. Um, I can catch the ball at least, <laughs> uh, soccer. I was in great shape. So I could get to the ball before anyone else. Um, but swimming was my thing. So it's exact, like you said, three different sports and three different activities. We just happened to have a competitive swim team. that was in the neighborhood that allowed me to do it. If, if that hadn't been there and I hadn't grown up in Sacramento, my life would be completely different, completely different. So I kind of bagged on Sacramento earlier, not being the place that, but, uh, I would, my life would not be the same without it because it, I, I found something that, that I was able to personally was able to do well. I just happened to be better. And, and, um, so, which is led into being very comfortable in the ocean. The other day I was in the surf zone getting ham, like I got caught in the surf zone, which is not the great place to be. All of a sudden the seaweed came wrapped around me, which I have no idea where it came from. I was, I stand up paddleboard. And it wrapped around my leash and it was like a, it was, it was a big glob and, um, and my board's hitting the, hitting the rock. So I'm like, oh, my board's getting trashed and I, but I couldn't get up and I'm getting, and the waves are hitting me and hammering me. And I'm like, this is kind of fun. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, my board's being damaged and I'm getting hammered and the seaweed's holding me down. But I think this is fun. Like, Hmm. 
anyway, so, so, but it goes back to, I'm a water person. I absolutely, if I'm not in the water, I'm a fish out of the water. Like I really, I, I am happiest when I'm around the water or in it. So. In high school, you've, you realized that swimming was going to be your catalyst for college. Cause obviously yep. the grades weren't going to do it. When did the military come into the picture or had it been something that was always there as you were growing up? Never, never. Um, no one in my family had ever been in the military. Um, I went to prep school cause I needed, I needed to learn how to work academically. Um, and this is after graduation from high school, after high school and, um, very intense, which was good for me. Um, and we lived in Santa Barbara, we lived in dorms and, uh, we, so it, it was, so we'd, we'd sit down for a couple hours. Like, so it was, it was really prep for the military academies and UCs. I wanted to go to UCLA because my family is split down the middle between UCLA and U- University of Southern California. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my dad, my dad went to USC. My grandmother went to USC. My uncle went to UCLA. My, uh, my sister went to UCLA. Uh, my brother-in-law, her, her husband went to UCLA. My best friend from high school went to UCLA. So I'm going to UCLA. And, but when we were going through this, we were going to prep school, we had this things where you had to fill these applications. And, and so everyone else was going to the military academies. I'm like, well, you know, the forms right here, I might as well, I might as well apply. I'll apply. It'll be good experience. And I remember sitting with the, with the, the headmaster there and, and he, my dad was there and we were like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to the air force? You want to go to the army? You want to go to the Navy? And I'm like, Hmm, I swim. Why not the Navy? Like, do you like to fly? Hmm, yeah, but not, it's okay. So literally that, so I was like, I'll apply to the Naval Academy. Like that's how much thought went into it. <laughs> and then, and then we had, to, and then part of going to the Naval Academy, you have to go through a congressional interview. You have to, you have to be nominated by a congressman and Congressman Matsu was the, was the gentleman, was the congressman who, who I received my nomination from. But I went to, and this is the eighties. And so I went to Congressman Matsui is Japanese and I, I walk in and a couple of people that I were on the board. So head of NAACP and um, a couple of Hispanic, et cetera. And one thing that I appreciate about really appreciate and, and Admiral Craven, who was my boss, still team three talks about this. Like it, it was, we didn't see color where I was, or I should say my family didn't see it. And so, um, so I was in this, and by the way, I'm going to screw this up, but I was in this, I was in the, I was in this, this interview process. And so there was not maybe one white person in the room, which again, I, I hope everyone takes it the right way. So before the room, before me, there was other people, non-white people, non, a non-white person. So it was a Hispanic, someone else, girl, et cetera. And I happened to know her like, like, so, um, so I went through this nomination process and, and was interviewed and my whole, whole point I want to get to, they were really qualified, way more qualified than me in my mind. Um, the people you were competing against competing against. And so 
so someone in the board, I think it was like Mr. Freeman or Mrs. Freeman. I don't remember which which one of the Freemans were there, but but it was someone or anyways, I'm trying to think about it. Someone asked me, I go, well, hey, what's your plan if you don't get into the Naval Academy? I'm like, I don't have a plan. Or maybe the question was before that. And they said, well, what what do you get? Oh, no, the question came first was, hey, so do you get credits for going to prep school? I was like, nope. Like, what? Like you don't get any credits to go to going to prep school, college credits? Like, no, no. They, why'd you do it? I go, to make myself better, which was really the answer. Like, it wasn't. And like, what are you going to do if you don't get in? And I'm like, I don't have a plan. Because I didn't have a plan at that point. Uh, like, and, um, and so what they, what, and I'm putting words in their mouth, so I don't know, but I think what they saw is like, man, this guy's nutty enough that he spent a year going to thing to go to the Naval Academy. What they don't realize is that was the better path for me because academically I, I needed to get, I needed to, like if I didn't go to prep school to learn how to study, I was going to really struggle in college. If I went to UCLA or anywhere else, I was not, I was going to be academically challenged. So I needed to learn how to be less academically <laughs> challenged. Um, and so it, it's, it was a, it was, it was a kind of thing. What they realized is like, man, this guy's going to go for it. This guy's putting the risk in. And what they, I don't think what they, they didn't realize is, I looked at the interview as a really good experience to to grow and all that. Next thing I know, I get this nomination. I'm like, did they make a mistake? Like, why did they pick me? And there was more qualified people. And at this time, um, and I just hate that people talk about, you know, color of skin, all that stuff, because it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't. And and I and I look at this was here was a here was a board of all minorities, the people for me, um, and the people after me were going through the process were all minorities, but they picked me, and I'm like, what the hell? Like, why me? Like, I get it when I was ranked when I was ranked number one in the nation swimming. I I get it when I was when when I why for swimming but that's not why i was getting picked by these guys so these people kind of saw something in me that maybe i didn't see because i was going through that i knew if i didn't do something that i I needed to do something better so i'm grateful because they didn't have to pick me it would have been a safer bet for them to pick the people before and after make the the because at the time we didn't have many women in the naval academy like it was one out of ten whatever else like they easily could have someone else that would have been a better fit on paper. Um, but they didn't. So that, I don't know who was watching over me, but someone was watching over me. Maybe it was everyone on the board, but that was a big, that was big. Um, that was a bigger moment for me than I realized. So and getting the Naval Academy, because I kind of like, didn't, didn't really think about being number one in the nation when I swam or being, being a good swimmer. Didn't really like, Oh yeah, it's everyone does that. And so getting on the Naval Academy, oh, doesn't everyone do this? Like, cause my, like my family had already gone to pretty good schools. I don't think I realized how good the Naval Academy was until 20 years after I got out. Um, and I do that now in my job now is I, I'm doing, I'm using my brain for stuff that I learned at the Naval Academy 30 years earlier or as being on, when I was on ships 
or be it a SEAL, that I'm using that stuff I learned from the military now. And so, um, and, I, and I, I see that. So we talked before we got on, we, we, I was talking about one of my customers, Valley View Casino and Boyd Long. And so he and I have lots of conversations, but I can see how both of us go back to where our roots started and what we learned. He was in law enforcement for San Diego Police Department, uh, did rose up number two guy there. And so just very, just very talented, but it's kind of going back, working back and, and kind of find that spot. And so I, I did luck out. I did luck out that every so often someone would, would be looking over me or a group would be looking over me and put me in the right place. But if you look back on it in hindsight and the outsider looking in on you, like your previous comment where you mentioned you rode 20 miles one way just to go to swim practice. So the ability to push through adversity where you didn't see it at the time, you recognized, hey, I need to go to prep school because I am going to struggle, if not fail, if I go straight into college. Somebody from the outside just looks at it as, man, he's got a lot of tenacity. Man, he's got a lot of dedication. And that's what they seen. And maybe, and take it, like you said, taking nothing away from the other people that you were competing for that congressional nomination. Maybe they just cruised through and everything came very easy for them. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I, I know my current company. Um, it was a, it, we've now been doing it four years and it was brutal. <laughs> uh, I can now say that now um, because we've turned the corner. But um, I, I ended up. So my current company, uh, I ended up buying, so a group of us were working for the previous company and um, the company couldn't continue on because didn't have funding. So good purpose, good mission. Tech at the time was not, it's a, it's a software IOT company in the, and it serves the hospitality space, but it wasn't, the tech was okay, not great, lots of holes in it. Um, and I looked around and it was like the team was really talented, like really talented. So uh, it's main, main, mainly around software. The lead, the lead person for software or the system architecture, basically system architecture is like, how do you build the house or how do you build the, the filing cabinet to put all the stuff and where do you have to find it and how do you use it? And 20 years from now, you're still going to be using that same filing cabinet. So you better design it the right way in the first place. So this guy, um, and I noticed this after working for him for a bit, I was like, I go, do you dream in code? <laughs> he goes, he kind of chuckled and he goes, yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I now get it. And uh, so that's one person. And then the person in charge of QA. She never says anything <laughs> ever like again, an hour meeting. She may say three words, like three words. Um, but because I'm kind of really paying attention, I can tell you absolutely when she goes on holiday and I can tell you absolutely before she came on board that when she came on board, like all of a sudden our, our Q and a started, started working better. We stopped having bugs in our software. We go into customer sites and stuff would work. So, all of a sudden, this person who rarely speaks, just very nice, very polite, but man, she's an animal when it comes to getting the stuff done. And then 
software guy um, who he says, yeah, I'm lazy when I write code. And which actually when you're writing code is actually a very good skill because you look for the easiest, you look for the smartest least amount of code to write to get the job done. And so his code is really good. Um, and then the head of product is just through the roof good. And he kind of pushes me in ways that I don't necessarily think about. Like, I'm like, yeah, we can take the hill. Let's go. And we just had, the, we had, uh, we have a ton of business coming in and I'm like, oh, we got 58 days to get these installs. And he goes, we don't have 58 days. I go, yes, we do. It's November 2nd and the 31st and okay, maybe it's 57 days, but it's 58 days. He's like, no, we don't. I go, no, you're right. All right. We have holidays, but it's 58 days with holidays. And he's like, no, it's not. I'm like, so then before the next call, I was like, well, okay, there's 35 days. I'm like, okay, well, we're just rightly put out. It's not 58, it's 35 days. So, so I, but we're all very different and very unique. And that skill to be able to identify people that are very different, but in their own right, they're number one. Doing things that I can never do. And going back to, I can hang on to the conversations they have halfway because of what I learned in the Navy, what I did with around radio handsets and RF because it's in our, it's a radio, it's a wireless uh, company, but it was really around that. And so where, where I was really lucky in the, um, and it's, it's starting to be, I, I don't know if people are starting to pick this up, but I was a SEAL team three early on and you'll see a lot of people came out of SEAL. Like everyone talks about dev group, SEAL team six. But what people don't talk about is there's a lot of people that came out of SEAL Team 3 that have gone on to do some very interesting things. Um, and so I, I guess all the teams can say that, SEAL teams can say that. I just happened to be tracking SEAL Team 3 where I spent most, did most of my platoons. Um, but when I was there uh, in my platoon, I just, I just happened to have some rock stars, like really talented, all my platoons. But my last platoon... Uh, some really talented people. And one guy was a sniper from the Captain Phillips raid. Um, another guy is up for the Medal of Honor right now. He's, he's, he's received the award that's one level down. And so, and, and there's a couple of, a couple other people that have, that have done stuff that haven't been, hasn't been publicized. And, um, but just really talented people. And, um, and so when I saw, this group of people that, which is now made up this current company. I was like, I'm never going to like, this is my dream. Like I'd work with some really talented people in the seals. And that's probably what I miss is the people really talented people. And I, all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my gosh, I could never hire these people. I could never find these people. Like I've done in a group that already worked together that like each other, that like each other, that are loyal to each other. And I'm like, I got to figure out how to make this work. And by the way, it wasn't that deliberate. But now, but if I really were to sit back, it was that deliberate. And I'm like, I got to do this. And so I ended up buying the company. I gave him some, gave, gave him all equity in the company. And we've just been grinding it out. And for, if anyone had told me, if, if someone came to me a while ago with this, I would have said, what are you doing? Stop. Like, it's too risky. Like, it's too risky. But they're, they're as tenacious as I am. And so we became unstoppable. 
And um, so we're now on Motorola radios. It's being launched. The product's being launched in a couple weeks, and it's, we already have some out, and we've done some other stuff with Motorola. And we're we're now all of us all of a sudden people are waking up for us. So we've just been quietly just plugging away. We haven't focused on sales. We just been focused on putting out really good tech and um, letting them come find you. Yeah, letting them find us because so and we're in the hospitality space. Many in hospitality, many many startups get a minimally viable product and sell the crap out of it and just sell, 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 sell and hope you don't get busted. And our talent was all in tech. And so, and then, um, so we didn't have the ability to go out and sell, sell, sell. And we also started right when COVID started. Not a good time to start a business or to, to buy a business that serves the hospitality space. Not, and so, what was good for us is we, so I talked about Boyd from Valley View. Um, I don't know if we talked about it in the conversation or talked about it before we came on camera, but, but when Valley View was shut down for, for eight weeks, we just sat in their, in their hotel and just kept refining the technology because we put it in, we high five each other like, great. And then we tested, it was like, oh, it doesn't quite work like we thought. And we and we had it installed at UC San Diego and some other places, and and the tech was okay. Again, again early on, it had holes, and um, and then when it came up to buy it, I was like, the tech's not that great, but the team is unstoppable. The team is amazing, and uh, that was more important than the tech. Taking you back to going into the Naval Academy, you mentioned one of the panel members asked you, what's your secondary plan? You said, I don't have one. Before you decided to even put in to go to the Naval Academy, you wanted to go to college, but what were you thinking was going to be your after college career? What, was, what were you leaning towards? <laughs> Didn't have one. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, well, I want to be a business guy. Okay. So I, I, I should say that. I want to be a business guy because I thought that's what you do, going to business. So. So the Navy was just a detour. The Navy was, um, cause my, when my sister went to college, um, my parents weren't wealthy and I saw, um, my sister was, who was pretty, it was academically strong. She did well in high school and stuff and she went to UCLA, but I also saw that she was having to work really hard just to, cause she had a job, et cetera, like and lots of people do. So let's, so it's not, whoa, right. My sister, whoa, else. but she was working hard and paying for school and, or working hard. My parents would help support as much as they could. And she was working a job to do it. And she was getting very little sleep and she was just grinding. And, and my, and I knew how well my sister done academically. I was like, well, she's having a hard time. How am I going to do this? And so when I got to the Naval Academy, I realized, oh, it's paid for, and I owed them five years. Once they get in, I was like, this is a great deal. They're going to pay for my education, and then I owe them five years? And um, so there was really, I hadn't even started thinking about what I was going to do. But, and then, so when I, but when I got in, my intention was always to get out right away. Like, get in, get out, pay back, your, pay back what you owe, and get in the business world. What in the business world? I didn't know. And I could probably, if you look at my career, you could probably say, well, tried everything. Yes. <laughs> um, so what year did you go into the academy? Uh, 85, 86, graduated 89. And 
coming out, you talked about going to ships, but was there the option for you to think about Marine Corps or the Navy, or was it always going to be the Navy? Oh, we had the option. Um, and that actually leads to an interesting point. Uh, so I actually had a billet to go SEALs when I graduated. So there's at the Naval Academy of Service Selection Night, which is I think January or something like that of your senior year. And I'd gone through the qualification and I had a billet and um I ended up turning it I ended up turning it down. And um it was because I was just scared of heights, like petrified. Um and it was having to jump out of an airplane. Like literally you put like I just scared. And it was enough that I didn't go. Um, and fast forward, I, and you hear people talk about it now, like, Oh, like you hear Bezos talk about, Oh, live a life with no regret, all that stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Well, back when I was 22, 23, I knew that I'd have regrets if I didn't try. I'm like, you cannot let your fears, I, I cannot let my fears stop me from doing this because I will regret. And then I was shooting with my best friend, Chris, we were shooting with their brother, his brothers, et cetera. And this was um, about six months after graduating from the Naval Academy. And I was, and I kind of made a comment like, oh, I was going to go, but and I was like, oh my gosh, I hate people that do that. Like someone says, oh, I was going to do, I was going to become an Ava SEAL, but, or anything else. And so, and sure, there's some people that go through buds and they get broken. And, and so understandable all that stuff. You have to respect the people that at least put their toe on the line and gave it a shot right. as opposed to never trying, but always falling back on, I was going to, but. Right. And so I was like, one of the things I hated came out of my mouth because when I was in the wardroom early on in my first ship, someone, someone said, oh, I was going to, I was going to go, but I'm like, don't say that. Keep your mouth shut. So don't puff your chuffs up. You didn't do it. So don't bring it up in conversation. So, um, so when I said it, I was like pretty disappointed in myself. Um, I was like, I gotta go. So I don't, I don't want to be that guy that I, that I didn't respect. Back in the early nineties as an officer, was it pretty easy to get an opportunity to go to buds? Um, three years prior, no, really hard. They only had five billets. Um, per class of about a thousand people. It's really hard. My, I think the year group before us, 88 or 89, there was like 20. All of a sudden they started opening up um, the candidate pool. So, um, but turn it down, went slow. I was on the battleship New Jersey. Awesome ship. Like it's the big battleship, 16 inch guns. And uh, my boss's boss was chief engineer, uh, Commander Joe Herger. Um, great gentleman. Great. He ended up taking me to his second. So we decommissioned the battleship in Jersey. And then I went to the USS left, which he was going to be a CEO. And I got there before he did. And because he went to command school and the second day he was there, I was like, uh, Hey, hey commander, uh, Herger, uh, sir, uh, I'm going to apply that to the seals. He's like, I can see his shake put his head down. And he goes like, in his head, he's like, I just took a billet. I moved you from Long Beach to be on my ship in Hawaii, which, by the way, was great being in Hawaii. And now you're going to leave me after I'm leaving here <laughs> two days? And he was great. 
like he was like he didn't he didn't get mad or anything he just put his head down was like okay um but that could have been a moment as a leader he could have said you do realize what you've just done i went out of my way to to bring you with me and this is this is how you're paying me back you jerk <laughs> but no he, so and um and there were a couple of times where I'd see him do things that were kind of stuck out for me. And I really appreciated that. And, and I haven't stayed in contact with him, but I'll never forget the guy. And um, so always grateful for the leadership that I was exposed to in the military. And always, always very humble. Like I only worked for one guy that was a jerk. Like, oh, he was a jerk. Um, but other than that, really worked with some great people. By the way, they were tough. Um, I'm a Craven example. Man, that guy's tough. But he was tough on himself. Like I remember one time we were doing this uh, run, swim, run, something else like that. And I think he's like 10, 15 years older than me. And um, and we're doing this run and just for the swim, and we'd all kind of spread out in the pack. And I hear this guy like huffing and puffing. Uh, I can catch him. I can catch him. I can catch him. I turn around. I was like, oh, my gosh. At the time, it was Commander McCraven. Like, Commander McCraven. I'm like, oh, gosh, I cannot let this old guy beat me. <laughs> and so we're like, so I'm thinking in the water. So as we're getting ready to get in the water, I'm like, at least I'll be able to blow him, and it, blow him out of the water. But that guy was an animal. And, um, and something we don't, I don't, re- this might be the first time I kind of publicly talk about it. So I was on an op. It was, it was a, it was a ORE, which is your final exam before you go on deployment. And we were going up to Vandenberg, and it was a it was a train op, long, long, long op, long transit, um, rough seas, brutal. People were getting sick, just brutal. And our no go, and we our final thing was to launch on Zodiacs and cross over this beach, in into an area onto rocky shores, et cetera. And our no go criteria was six to eight feet, and uh, surf, and so. We got there and um, sent my swimmer scouts in, um, Dan um, and Johnny Utah, uh, which was the which was the nickname that one of one of our buddies gave him, and they swam back out, and I, I already knew that we were at the limits and probably over limits, and Dan was the officer, uh, and Dan and I, we're over the I'm. Zodiac, so it's only you're only about 18 inches above the water. I'm looking over the thing, and we're kind of we're whispering. Obviously, we're we're a ways off things, so no one could hear us anyway. But you're still you're still speaking quietly, and and I said, "Hey, can we go?" And Dan goes, Dan's eyes are like big. He goes, "No." <laughs> I'm in my head. I'm like, mm, "Not the answer," because <laughs> McRaven's on the beach at this point. He's waiting to watch us come in, watch us for the op. And so I look at Johnny Utah. And I'm like, can we go? And he's like, no. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's not the answer. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you again. <laughs> that's not the answer. Like, because this is our grading app before we go on deployment. Like, we can't not go. And I'm like, are you guys sure? <laughs> and they're like, no. And I'm like, huh? What do I do? Because by the way, Johnny Utah went on DevGrew and was the snipers. Like, the guy's good. The guy's got courage. So it's not like he was a chicken. Uh, and Dan was a good swimmer and all that stuff. So it wasn't like they were wimping out. Like, 
And so, and I'm assuming you're talking guys who have tenure already in the SEAL teams at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking in my head, okay. And, and this is the, the one thing I could do better than anyone else on a tune is I could swim better than everyone else. But that was not part I of would the hope op. so. Yeah, but that was not the op. The op was to get the boats across, across the beach and then continue on patrolling in from there. And I'm like, oh, gosh, what do we do? Craven's going to rip me a new one. <laughs> but the guys said, don't go. And so quickly thing to do, okay, I, I could say we're going. But then what, why did I plan out the mission? And if the plan's a plan and no criteria is no criteria, then he, then I should have put a different, I should have put a contingency plan. So, so we end up waving off. I meet McRaven on the, um, in Santa Barbara on the pier. Cause we're still on digital craft. Cause we go back, make a long story. Next, my next thing is like, Hey, you got to go back. I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> Cause it was it, at this point. So I, I should tell you the waves were triple overhead. Like it was big. Um, really big. And, and at night, so no visibility, et cetera. So when a wave comes in that big, you don't see it until the last second, like, you know, like before it crashes on you. And he goes like, you got to go back. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, aye, sir. Right in my face, I'm like, aye, sir. Yep, we'll get right back there. In my head, I'm like, oh, crap. And then, and then I'm like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And of course, we're going back. Like, we're going to go back. Like, he tells you, you're going to do it. And uh, and then we talked to the to the drivers of the indigenous boat. Like, nope, we're not going back. Inside, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so um, their fault. <laughs> yeah. So, but this and so what McRaven was saying, and he was right. Let me be very clear. He was right because we couldn't, we didn't make it. So now go back and do it during the day and figure out how to make it work. So it didn't work according to the plan. But now go back and make it work. So it was not per se that we were a bunch of wimps and didn't go. It's like, how do you solve the problem differently? That's where he was going at. And so when you're at this point, your ego's kind of getting away. Like, Hey, we, I, I failed the team. I didn't, we didn't go in. We failed the mission, whatever else. But you could say we didn't fail the mission because we didn't go in. What I found out later on is one of the guys came out to me 10 years later. He goes, thanks for, for not going because I would have died that night. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, okay. I started back. It's like, why, why did you say you didn't, you would have died. I was like, well, I didn't have the right, right gear, et cetera. I was like, that's where I failed. I failed um, goo in the standpoint of that. He didn't speak up to say, Hey, I'm not ready to go. Like he hopped on the boat and was ready to go. And I'm like, Oh, that's where I failed is that goo didn't get his gear right in the first place. And secondly, I didn't realize when we got on the boat that he wasn't prepared and he didn't say anything. I, I didn't, I didn't, so that was my failure. Um, and the other failure was I didn't figure out what are we going to do if the surf zone's not an issue? What's our backup plan? Like, I didn't think the backup plan far enough along. Like, we're going to do this, go correct it. Well, okay, but what is if that doesn't work? And so, but now fast forward six months later, there was the same same waves during the day, McRaven, um, there was a boat, a 30-foot rib, and, and McRaven writes about this in one of his books and he hops in the boat and he goes, okay, guys, we're going. And there's another, there's an officer on the boat like Nile and he goes, oh crap, because they knew how big it was. It was really big. And they had, they had Zodiac. So it was an entrance to a, um, 
the from the pier and just out to a big water waterway, et cetera. And they had zodiacs, safety boats, et cetera. And um, and so they went and they go up the wave, first wave. So a 30 foot boat. And as it goes up the wave, it jumps the first, it jumps, it literally jumps it. So this the the ribs are jet propulsion. So literally it sucks the water in and sucks and shoves the water out. And that's how it propels itself. So it doesn't have blades, but it's literally sucks it in, sucks it out. So the problem was when it cleared the first wave, it took air. And so now that one of the, it's two engine, two engines, one of the engines became airbound and stalled. So now what happens, it goes up the second one and not enough power. And then, and then the wave crashes on it. So this is like a big boat that it just tossed around. So again, the wave, I wasn't there. So, so maybe a little folklore. So I'm going to make it folklore. This is the way I want to envision it. Um, was there was water above the bow. And by the way, I always say water above the bow and water below the stern on the, on the wave, but it, it was big. It was big enough that the, the boat was going straight forward that it should have pierced through, but it was enough energy that it flipped the boat over and sank the boat. McRaven almost died that night. Almost died that day because one of the lines got wrapped up and pulled him down. Another gentleman ripped his dry suit. The Zodiacs came in and pulled him out. And people came up to me and said, well, hey, do you feel vindicated? Craven was telling you to do something that he went out and did on a bigger, more powerful boat, and he sank the boat. I'm like, no. Why would you say that? He goes, well, I go, what he did was he took a step back because we knew it didn't work for us, took a step back and proved it, and he broke the boat, which proved it didn't work. Okay, so now what are the tactics we have to do to solve it to make it different? That's the part I think many people missed. It was never about an ego thing of who is right or wrong, but you keep pushing, and sometimes you're going to break things when you push it and figure out how to solve it differently. Um, and so, and that's after that, there were um, jet skis brought in to the, into the team, some other things, and so even even oh, deployed overseas, they they were starting to bring in. So women weren't allowed in special forces at the time, and but they still had they still had women going on and doing missions with the men because there were times where where you needed women there to do things, especially when you started splitting up the men and the women, and when you start doing takedowns of properties, et cetera. That you need you need to have women are just better at doing some things than men, and men are better at others. But it goes back to the whole team. It goes back to my team now with with my current company. I have one guy who's really good at system architecture. I have another person who's Q and A. I have another person who's really good at software development. Another person, product. and by the way, not all of us are men. Not all of us are Asian. Not all of us are whatever else. We are all different, and that's if someone were to ask me about my superpower now. It's kind of recognizing underachievers, or excuse me, overachievers, like very clear, overachievers that are underestimated. Um, so, and you just keep pushing things. And McRaven, McRaven showed me that when it doesn't work, how do, you, how do you keep pushing? And so the difference between what McRaven did and I did is I briefed a plan. So I couldn't break it because then I was saying, guys, I know we briefed and all this stuff, but I'm going to change it on the fly because I'm a cowboy. No. And, and even in one of McRaven's books, he talks about one time when he was a cowboy and everyone got pissed off. I'm like, hey, you can't do that. Like, you got to put a plan in place. And so I didn't realize that story until about five years ago where he was where he did a cowboy move. 
and and he learned from early on, early on as an ensign. Um, and so, so, but, but what I put a plan so I couldn't break, but what McRaven did different was he didn't let anyone build a plan. He's like, let's go guys. So it was never, it was never like, I know you guys made a plan, but we're going to change it. He just said, Hey, let's go guys, which was very smart on his part. Cause he knew if he knew, he kind of, I don't know if he knew this, but he knew if he put a plan in, no one would go. <laughs> He's like, and, and they'd done the brief and they put the safety boats in. So it was like they were still planning, but he didn't let anyone flinch. He was like, let's go. And, uh, and a lot of respect for the guy from that standpoint. And so, again, I was fine that people came up and said, hey, you know, do you feel vindicated? And I was, and, and I'm also appreciate that I never looked at it. I was like, no, he just made us better. And McRaven's always been making the community better. And so as a leader, not everyone's going to like what you do. Sure, I talk to people that aren't, aren't fans of McRaven and, and don't respect everything he does. Um, but that's just point in time on certain decisions. Like as a leader, you're, you're going to have the, you're going to make decisions that, that people are always going to like, but as long as you have the right intent and right purpose, you're going to do fine. Well, and you said something to me that, that I really think many who haven't led a high proficient team don't understand and you talked about Goo, how he said, thanks for calling off that mission because I didn't have the proper equipment. And you immediately realized that as a leader, you failed to make sure that he didn't have his correct equipment. But the flip side to that is when you lead a highly proficient team, they understand they'll take more chances. They'll, they'll fall back on their extensive skills and training mm -hmm. and say, I'll be able to overcome this deficiency. Yep. And when you're in that leadership position, it's even more of a burden to ensure that you're making the right decision for the team. Because many times your, your team will go, don't worry, boss, we'll get it done. And, and as a bad leader, it's easy to fall back on that safety net of they'll just make it work. And that's, that's where you're failing. Right. Um, uh, in that, my last platoon, I had a chief, uh, Mark Crampton, and, and unfortunately committed suicide probably about two years ago. Um, I mean, just, um, he was a senior enlisted guy in the platoon, chief at the time, and went on to become mass chief. Um, and I, I, I bring up that he committed suicide because I, w I want everyone to recognize, like, this guy was a stud, like, absolute stud, like, he helped us go through a lot of really tough things and helped us solve through. He was always very respectful and he was the wise man of the platoon. Uh, he was much more experienced than me. Um, so like in the, in the military you have enlisted and then you have like the senior enlisted who are really the, the, the wise folks, wise men and women. And then you have the officers who are, who don't have as much experience, but they're kind of in a different position, different things. So there was a lot of things with that I was relied on Mark from tactics, like like actual in the field tactics. And sure, at this point, I'd had a lot of experience, and I and and I was I was competent, but I also knew that he was wise, and so he did lots of employments, and so I was always very appreciative that uh, that he was always there to help us be smarter and help push the team, but he was also there to make sure that we had those like the incident that happened with goo shouldn't have happened, but he's always very good at doing that. I, I bring up that, um, that he committed suicide because I don't want to glorify it, but he's a guy I would have never suspected that that would have happened to him. Never would have suspected. 
And so um, could we have done something different? Who knows? But everyone struggles. And so I think it's at a certain point figuring out how, how do we help them. And, but, but Mark was tough enough that I could have easily just seen, well, I'm going to go solve this problem myself. So, which is unfortunate because he was a wise man, just, just grateful, very grateful for that guy. And that was back. He was, so back to originally said there was a lot of talent came out. So three. So Mark Crampton, um, Johnny Utah, um, McRaven, Steph Bass, uh, and, and, um, and John Rodella. I mean, if you go look, if you go look at each one of those guys, they've all gone on to, and been very successful. Some in the military, some outside the military. Uh, but that same platoon, over half them, two thirds at least of the people that stayed in went on DevGrow. So just really lucky to have so much talent, which again, I'll go back to when I saw the people that were with my current company, I was like, I look left, look right. I was like, no one. Will. And by the way, no one knows what's here which is why we grinded it out for, to our company. And which is also the reason why when we started talking the technical conversations with Motorola for um, our software to, to solve a problem, which we, we solved geolocation, indoor location. So if you're on a panic button or a radio, you push the button, you get the right floor in the right room for a building. So we think about law enforcement, if you're in a hotel um, and you have a mass shooting event or schools, and everyone, all the teachers or the housekeepers push their buttons, you know where they are. And but it's not really the use case. It's really around protective. It's, it's sexual harassment, some other things that happens. But, but, he, but what we've done, because we have really, just, and they're all from Qualcomm, really talented technologists. But then from me standpoint of being a responder of hostage rescue stuff, like what would I want if I had to approach ability? So I think about the shoot happened in Texas. I give all these, all these law enforcement people come up and like, Hey, how do we assault the building? And the problem, and this is where I saw early on. The problem was no one walked up to him and said, here's a tablet, here's a layout of the building. And here's where everyone is like, that's what we do. And so that use case hasn't been, we haven't even talked about the use case with anyone yet because people, people aren't ready to hear that, but that's what we do. Basically when law enforcement comes up, hand them a tablet, says, I have no idea what's going on, but here's a tablet and here's where all our, here's where all our employees are. I don't know where the shooter is, but I know where our employees are. So you can at least systematically start solving the problem. You're given the pieces. And so that's really what, what our software does or what we do is we're given the pieces to start solving the problem, start working it. And so the experience that um, assault team either like from the, from, um, from the police force, they're going to understand how to, how, to, how to work a problem. And so that's kind of when taking kind of the best of breed of from technologists and then my experience from being in the military. So w one of the things that um, I've talked about my current company, but, but what the talent, but what I appreciate with the military, there's just a lot of talent there. And, um, and I see that in law enforcement too, which I didn't see, which by the way, law enforcement was never on my radar to do. Um, but the characteristics are very similar. The type of person that goes into it, very similar. Um, and just a lot of talent. I kind of talked about it earlier, but I just really want to bring it back to, like, people in the military, you just, you're surrounded by some just really good people. And by the way, you can say, well, it's because you're a SEAL. No, no, no. I saw it also when I was on ships, too. Um, and it wasn't just the people initially driving the ships or the SEALs. It was all the people that were around it. 
the support staff, which I don't like that word support staff, um, because they're not support. They're part of the team. And the team functions as a group, not as a single person. Um, or more importantly, the team doesn't function without them. Correct. Correct. And that, and so that's the part that I learned from the military is just how to work together and how to see each other and how to see what each person brings thing, which again, led me to my company now, which I've done less things in between then. But because of what I learned in the military, I talked about earlier, I, I've, I've learned so many things back then that I'm using now. Like I'm using all the skills I learned back then, like identifying people that, that are that are a good team. And I hope they'll let me into, into the join the group, but it's really about the talent. So, and one thing I like, I do like um, about working with police force is there is a kinship because all of a sudden we'll start, start talking to senior, senior people in the police. And I can always tell the ones that have been part of the, the direct action teams. Cause all of a sudden we'll start, they'll start talking about, Oh, and I was doing this. Like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I recognize that <laughs> the hand movement, et cetera. So anyways, uh, yeah. Well, I never intended to stay in the military and never was my intention. Very grateful. And I, and I didn't stay like our intention was always to get out in five years. I stayed in long, much longer. I stayed in nine years. So either stayed in too long or not long enough to get retirement, but I wouldn't change anything. And that was where my next questions were going with the military, not having been on your radar until you actually applied to go to the Naval Academy. What was it like for you to make that transition from civilian life into the military? Did you struggle with it or did it come pretty easy to you? And not necessarily focusing on the SEAL team, just being in the military and the structure and especially going into the Naval Academy at such a young age. Um, helped that I went to prep school for a year um, because I was homesick at prep school. Luckily, not at the Naval Academy. So, because uh, I would have been brutal. Um, I think I think most kids are homesick when they leave for the first time because it's just change. It's change. It's really change, which is what you go through when you when you transition out of the military or a career job, law enforcement. It's change. And so, as a kid, it's called it's called being homesick, but it's really not liking change. And so, I think that's the part where um, kind of identify what's really the issue. And then obviously talking in, and I can hear when you, when you talk about them, there, there, there probably was a presence about McRaven even back then. And I don't know if he voiced his desires to promote to the level that he did back then, but being around that kind of team, you already mentioned that you ended up staying a little bit longer than you had initially planned, but what was the catalyst or what prevented you from saying, I'm staying in and making a career out of this? Um, so I went back. So I think I went back to school. I went to grad school, my final two years and, um, with a, pl- with a purpose to grad school or just to get education, to give me options. So now I started being strategic. Cause I wanted, I, so my intention again was never to stay in. It was always to get out. So when I came back from doing deployments, I ended up having an opportunity to be the first phase officer. Actually, originally I was supposed to be in charge of the jump team, uh, the leapfrogs. And I was like, mm, 
the person who was deathly afraid of heights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily, um, at this point, I learned to fake it till you make it, but, but that's a very good point. So, so literally, if you look at my last jumps, I would have a big smile on my face because that's the way I work, work through stuff. Like I just put a big smile on my face like, this is awesome. And you tell yourself enough times, it becomes awesome. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so maybe it was because I didn't really want to keep jumping out of airplanes, but I was also like, I need, I, I'm doing my short tour. So I want to, I want to do something else. So I, I want to do, do something productive with my time. So I go to grad school. So that's, so then I said, Hey, can I, can I do something where I'm actually do something different in buds as a, and so they gave me first phase, which I was so grateful for. So I was a first phase officer, but that allowed me to go to grad school. And then I started grad getting my MBA and I, and I went to the career services and I, I, I looked at, I looked at, there was really three options. There was UC San Diego, San Diego state. So I thought UC San Diego, San Diego state and university of San Diego and UC San Diego didn't have a grad school at the time or a master's program in business. So I was like, Oh, that one's off. And then I went to San Diego state and USD and, um, and then I went and said, Hey, what are your specialty programs? Because you can get an MBA, but what are you going to do with it? Am I going to hang it on the wall or is it going to be something productive? And so what university of San Diego had was they had this program with an emphasis in supply chain. And, and they also had emphasis in project management and some others. So then I, I started out as a project management guy. Cause I'm like Navy project management makes sense, like fits. But then, um, so it's a two-year program. Then a year into it, I went to the career services and I said, Hey, who's hiring? Why are they hiring? Cause again, I'm focusing on getting found a job, figuring out what my options are. Cause at this point I could still stay in if I wanted to, but what's going to be the best options. And I'm, I'm a project management guy, MBA. And they're like, and they mentioned off the companies that come. And I was like, I have no idea who those are. Like, who, who are those companies? And, and I was like, who's hiring for supply chain? Well, IBM and HP. And I'm like, oh, I recognize those. And so I quickly switched to supply chain because I didn't care. I, I really, I don't care. Like it's the, for me, the master's was a check in the box to learn the language. And that's um, learn the language of what I was going into. And so I ended up getting picked up by IBM being offered and it was a financially, I couldn't turn it down. Um, sure. You can argue retirement, stay in the military, you get that, blah, blah. Um, but at the time it just, just too big of a bump. I couldn't not do it. And it was kind of way back. If you remember what I said early on, my destiny was always to be a business guy. Like I thought that's, I'm going to be a business guy. Like, and I didn't really challenge it. And I didn't have some deep seated dream. It was just business guy checking the box. And so that's kind of where, how it all of a sudden ended up. And I remember talking to um, time was, I think he was captain or commander, commander John McTie. And telling him he was at Warcom at the time, walking down there, and it's because he was my first CEO at SEAL Team Three, and walking down there and saying, "Hey, I need to let you know I'm going out." And he kind of, I mean, that was a tough conversation. Telling him I was getting out, like really tough, because I, because I, I don't think I realized what I had at the teams. I don't realize, like, I just thought everyone was great. <laughs> I just thought that was just a great, and, and sure, it was tough and all that, but it was just, um, but I was just surrounded by so much talent, so many things, and, and IBM was great, but it wasn't, it wasn't my happy place, um, and so I think. Did the IBM opportunity come simply because you were in that grad program? Yep. So you didn't have to go, quote unquote, job hunting. 
it was already, it was there and and you already had a foot in no so, so I was, I'd go through the interview process. Right. But what I'm saying is the, the door opened because of the grad program that you were in. Correct. hundred percent. And, but I learned the language. And so I don't know if you probably don't recognize his name, but John Paul DeHario, JP. Um, what does that name sound familiar? So have you heard of Paul Mitchell Haircare? Yes. And Patron. Okay. Founder of those companies. Got so, it. so I, I remember good pickup. Uh, so I, he, I, I spent about three weeks with him when I was at Bud's as a phase instructor. He was there doing some stuff, and he's very supportive of the military, very supportive. And I remember driving to the airport one day. He's like, okay, what do you want to know? It was kind of like, because we'd always been talking around in groups, and he kind of gave me this time. And I was like, how do you manage? Because so, at the time, I think he had like 12 or 15 businesses. Like, how do you do that? And they were all different. He goes, you got to learn the language. If you learn the language, you can do it. Because finances are finances. Revenue in. Expenses out. So if you learn the language of that as a supply chain guy or a software guy or a retail person, you're going to be okay. It was that early conversation which validated why I needed to get my master's and why I was getting my master's. Because at the time, there was four of us that got, four lieutenants that got out and two of us stayed out and two went back in because they couldn't find meaningful employment. And one became an admiral. Okay, I guess it wasn't a boob. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that, but, but he was competent. And, and the other guy became um, a Navy captain. Travis became a Navy captain. So, and well-respected. So it was because they didn't, they couldn't find the path forward. And so taking the lessons from JP, learn the language, and then finding out where people that are hiring, where do they hang out? And so if you think about it, if you're selling a product, you're now the product. It's like, if you want to go buy soup, you go to the grocery store or you go to, or if you have a saver or, or you go to the, um, the, the local farmer's market, but you, you generally know where to go hunt. You're not going to go to an auto parts store if you want soup. Let's hope not. So <laughs> let's hope they don't sell it. <laughs> But um, um, by the way, I'm thinking of the, like the, the the noodles next to the oil. So I'm not. Really, and, 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 so, but you've got to go hang out where either digitally or physically hang out of where someone's going to buy that product. And if you're selling soup, then you got to figure out where where to put your soup. If you're selling beverage, where are you going to put the beverage? Um, and if you're selling yourself. Where is someone that you want to work with? Where are you going to do that? And, and it may take a while. Like you can't just walk in and say, hey, hire me. I'm great. Um, and so hospitality is a great space. Like I worked that space for two years before anyone even knew me because I'd come from a different space. I'd been in retail for 10 years and the company I was with, we started at 400 million. And when I left, we grew it to 1.2 billion. And um, we had... I'm, I'm assuming this is after IBM. Yeah, it's okay. after IBM. But this was so, and and with that, I had businesses in Japan, South Korea, um, Panama, South Africa, a couple in the U.S. But they're all standalone business units. So I, I kept setting up these different business units. We did some other stuff, but I kept doing the same thing. So I became faster and at, at seeing which levers to pull and what to pull and what not to pull and when it was working, when it wasn't working. And so it helped that helped me become a startup guy, even though I was in a big company to figure out. And so, so I've become much more 
comfortable in startups where there's no way I could have done what I'm doing now previously. No way. One, luck, I had to have the talent. But two, I had to have the trust in myself that what I was seeing, because no one else saw what I saw, and to keep pushing. And it's and I even had investors who thought I was crazy. Like, what are you doing? And then I stopped, I stopped trying to raise investors because I was realized I'm spending too much time trying to convince them of something that I see that they don't see. It's like, it's not, not my problem they don't see it. Because if they're not going to give me the money, then get out of my way. But the team believed in me, which now grateful for but but it was it's but i learned the language and it takes a while to transition which is the point if you want to transition you got to go find out where where they are and where do they hang out and you got to start putting yourself there so you become recognized people want to hire people they like friends 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 don't fire friends friends hire friends so you've got to figure out they're not going to hire people that are fresh off the street going back to when you were talking about going into grad school and you had to choose one of the colleges in San Diego, because obviously you were still active duty with the Navy, so you needed a, a college that was in close proximity to you. When you got the opportunity with IBM, how important was location to you in the sense, were you already ingrained in San Diego or were you open to moving if necessary? Um, so I knew I had to be open to moving. And, and, and the reason being, I was 30s, 30-ish. I wanted to be back in San Diego. The day I left San Diego, I knew I was coming back. But I wanted to go away and get big company experience. Because if I could do that, my thought was, I don't know if it's true or not. So, so I, I want to be careful anyone's hearing this. Like, just because this was my plan doesn't mean it's right. And I may be, may be wrong. Probably was wrong. But it worked for me. Where did IBM take you to? Oh, all over the place. So my first, first job was Boulder, Colorado. Love Boulder. And I was in this rotation program. So the reason why I went to work for IBM, I was in this rotation program. So every six months we'd move. So it was a, it was like the greatest opportunity ever. So I, I went and was a distribution supply chain guy for six months in Boulder, Colorado. So I learned a bunch. Don't give them much. So I, I basically take a bunch of wealth from them. And then I move to the next job, which was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And picked up, moved the family there. And we were, um, and I worked in their PC division, basically with hard drives. So hard drives that go that went into laptops because at that time the IBM saw the laptop division, went into the servers, um, and then then moved to Toronto and worked on their e business strategy up in Canada. And Toronto was fantastic. So I lived. If anyone's been to Toronto, I lived right near Young and Eglinton. Young's the longest street in North America. And so I can always tell when someone knows Toronto, like, oh, like, oh, you were in this part of the part of the area. And, I was, and, and we all, and it was the best of New York and the best San Francisco combined. And the food is wonderful, wonderful. And it was inexpensive. So the food was so good there. Like when my buddies would come visit, like we'd go to the sushi restaurant, which surprised me. It's so good. Sushi was there. And then we'd walk across the street and go to the Thai restaurant. Like we just ate way too much. And luckily my buddies would come where like we'd work out like animals. So we could eat like a, we could eat like four meals. And so we, we would dip because it was just so it was the U S dollar went pretty far there, but the food was fantastic. Love Toronto. After that moved to just one thing I want to point out real quick. So from my friends who are from Canada and Toronto, mm -hmm. when you first said it, you went Toronto. And then as you kept talking, the second T went away, which is how they actually say it. Oh, I didn't even realize I did that. So, well, 
yeah, it, it, it's so the my um my friends that live in Canada they always kind of make make fun of the United States because I think I think I think in some respects because the United States is so big we our world is our world and when you're in Canada or other parts of the world you have a much more global perspective and so no contrary to maybe how I joke about Canada was not the 51st state <laughs> uh, and I was very careful I said that. But um, but much more global perspective. The news was much more global. Um, you got the U.S. news. You also got the Canadian news, et cetera. Um, something happened where I had, to go, I had to get something done through healthcare. I was surprised how inexpensive it was, and it was good. So I, I think there's lots of things that um, every country has a great opportunity. So um, but yeah, and then so after that, uh, Toronto. Then I went moved to the tri-state area in New York. Lived in Connecticut. 72 minute train ride to, to Grandchild station. But I had people that were, they were working for me about 35 people. I think it was 35. We managed about a billion and a half in spend for supply chain stuff. Um, these are all different companies or all subsidiaries of IBM. These were okay, good question. So, um, all part of IBM. So this was, so distribution procurement ran all distribution in Colorado, all distribution for IBM. Every product movement was gone, was managed to this group, a uh, large group. So at the time, IBM was top 10. Um, I think they're top 10. Sorry. And this is the early 2000s, basically, uh, for you? 98. Yeah. Late, late 90s, early 2000. And then, um, so Boulder was distribution, IBM distribution. Raleigh was PC, IBM PC, IBM hard drive division. It was basically PCs. Raleigh, the Raleigh R2P, Raleigh was where the kind of all the hardware and stuff was done there. Toronto was their um, Canadian subsidiary or Canadian IBM Canada, but ran their e-business strategy. They were doing something, we were launching something globally. Um, so I went up there and worked on them with the, the Canadian portion of it. Um, and then came back and managed all their special services. So any any type of labor stuff that they contracted out. So all this m- movement. How old are your children at this time? One, very young. So it's not really impacting them. No, no. So it was because I, I moved more in the I moved more with IBM than I did in the military, uh, from the standpoint of housing. So and I was moving every six months, and uh, so. Was married then, not married now, but I was, but I appreciate that, that my wife at the time was able, was willing to get up and move. And we did these things and because, and the reason why I did it was because I got experience in, in a year, in two years, the same amount it would have taken me six years to somewhere, do somewhere else. Like I got a, just a ton of experience because I was, I was always at that point, always very rushed. Like I, I gotta get, I gotta get ahead. I gotta get faster. I gotta get faster. Like I, I like I, I stayed in too long. I got to catch up. Um, I got us. And so I probably didn't slow down enough to smell the flowers. Like, I think I'm start finally starting to take a step back and slow down and look around. Like I'm still working as hard, probably harder than I ever have. But I think I have a better perspective now of just stopping, looking at the ocean and going, wow, this is amazing. Look at the sunset. Oh my gosh. Or looking at a flower or something else. While you were in an active, were you actively looking over the fence? At the civilian world and feeling like you were missing out? No. Hmm. Interesting question. No. 
Um, it just happened to be what I was doing at the time, but it wasn't a business guy because I, I, I think one of the things that I realized is when I set something in my mind, I don't realize how hard I set it. Like for my current company, like it was not an option to not, to not finish it. And it wasn't because, because if, if you find you have a product and you find there's a market, like if you find there's a market demand, like if there's a market demand, it's not about coming up with some great creative idea and then find a market. That's way too hard. If you find a market that has a need and then you realize, oh, you can solve it better than else, then okay. We just couldn't get, we just didn't have enough of the sales force to really get the early traction. We talked about it earlier. So I focus on building, we focus on building a really good product. And now people are, and, and Motorola kind of saw that, oh my gosh, these guys are like, kind of like the cat's meow. Not me, because I'm a technologist like everyone else. I just happen to be the face. And these technologists are like, oh my gosh, these guys are like really talented. So that's why kind of Motorola started picking up on us and started, and that's why we're on the radios now. Like, like there's, like we'll get on calls. There'll be three of us, and there'll be like fifteen folks from Motorola because they're just a big organization. But I'm like, I look at that. And I'm like, I'm a non-entity on this thing because it's all tech call. But I'm like, there's two of us, two of them. There's three of us, but really count two people, and there's a lot more of them. And so I just realized that how talented the team is and what they're doing exponentially. Even when they were working at IBM, they were, or I'm sorry, when they were working at Qualcomm the team, they would do the power, each one of them would do the equivalent of what three or four other people would do. So, and, and Motorola picked that up. So lucky. Was this a team that you were already working with in a, in a different entity or a different environment? Cause you've made comments of like, Hey, they were already there and I came in. Yeah. How did, how did that happen for you? So, um, the company called was called Salutech. Uh, one of my former professors at University of San Diego, actually full circle, professor at University of San Diego. He wasn't actually my professor, but he taught one of the programs. Um, he taught one of the programs that um, aim and drive, which was really how do you manage a procurement process, et cetera. I learned from one of his protégés, took the class. Um, he was the one that brought Gene Richter in, which is, he was kind of the godfather of procurement. So anyone who was in procurement, he won, there was a big purchasing award. Um, annual thing was awarded. He was the only person I think that's received at three different companies. Received it at, at HP, Ford, and IBM. We were there, and so the guy who started Salutech started um, had a relationship with with Gene Richter. Gene Richter was like, "We're going to build, we're going to build the world class supply chain program, and we're going to go pull people in from top five schools in the United States." to, to in, in that respective domain. So they're picking people from University of San Diego, Tennessee, Arizona State, and he brought them in. And so, so now 20 plus years later, Jimmy was doing this startup and good idea and all that stuff, but just didn't have enough funding to do it. And because of that, there was a team that was already brought there. So Rajesh was already there and I was brought in to to help launch the product, and um, in the and there was a gentleman who was the CEO was Adam. He was from Australia, and they kind of did some shifting around because it's pretty hard to run a company from Australia when it's here in the U.S. So they asked me to be CEO, and then as I was doing it, we just didn't get the fund. We got some initial funding, and we just didn't get the funding. And Jimmy's like, "Hey, we need to shut down." Um, I was like, "Fine." I kind of looked around. I was like, "You want to sell it? What do you want to do?" And we were eventually worked through a deal and grateful that we did. And um, we bootstrapped it. 
so the team and I bootstrapped him. And really, it was not it was not the it was not the company, but it was the folks that were already working. So Rajesh was there. Rajesh goes, "Hey, I have two other people that we should bring in to help us get this tech going." So we brought them in, and then about four months later, the company just kind of went belly up. And so it was Rajesh and Malani and um, Jim and Kevin. Um, and that's, and those, those were, and there was one or two, other, but those are the early folks I saw that, that they, I came in to help Jimmy or as part of this, Adam brought me in to help go to market. I saw these people around and then Adam went away to go work on some other stuff. And I just, and I just kind of looked around like tech's okay. Ideas. Okay. We're, we're the market's going to fall apart. COVID starting, not a good time to do anything. But there was talent was there, and that so that so I just happened to be in the same talent. I just happened to be in the same in the same boat as them. So they became my boat crew. <laughs> was the desire to get into tech originally, or is it just merely you parlayed opportunities that came your way? Hundred percent parlayed opportunities. If you look at my background, you're like, what the heck? Because I was a procurement guy at IBM, which we now call supply chain. Uh, which is, which you could say, well, that's not really a glamorous job, but man, if you understand how to buy stuff and, and negotiate and how to, how to manage your cost structure, it's invaluable skill. Use it all the time now. Um, and then, and then I went and sold software um, from two software startups, but did startups and then somehow transitioned into retail consumer engagement. And it's really around how do you get a consumer to buy one more item? So <laughs> The company that I talked about was 400 million. If you, do you ever shop at Costco? Mm-hmm. You ever get a food sample? No. You're one of the few. It it just, there there's something in the back of my mind. It's like, <laughs> I wouldn't mind if they created a food sampling area where people just go there, but they set up right in the aisle and they block everybody. Yep. So uh, Trader Joe's does that, like you, like you talk about. And, uh, and I always get excited when I go to Trader Joe's, like, oh, the sample. <laughs> so, but that business is what we grew from 400 million to 1.2 billion. It's, it's, and by the way, like Mabel at the table, that's a real business. And so I remember uh, Frank Cohenauer, one of his friends asked him, like, is that a full-time job? And Frank was like, yes. And, and when I first started, uh, they would always have us, they'd always have people in leadership go and do a go do a demo, go work, go work at a Costco. And, um, like, and so that was good experience. And so, because you're on the, you're on the cart, you're selling and it's really hard to sell some of the stuff unless you act like it's your product. It's yours. And you, and you kind of, it's mine. I got to sell this and it's mine. So like I, I sold some, I, I, <laughs> That day I did a demo on some food items and stuff. And another one was a double toilet paper holder. I'm like, how in the world am I going to sell a double toilet? Like, wh- why is Costco carrying a double <laughs> toilet? Like, who shops at Costco that needs a double toilet paper carrier? Like, small businesses. At the business center. You're right. And so, so then I started thinking, well, how am I going to sell? I'm going to sell it to, and so I, I just started rattling off, hey, if you have this, this is it, I can do it. So like, but it, but it was, it was a good experience from the standpoint it put me to understand kind of what the role is and how to do it. And so I've taken that same philosophy though, even though I'm not a 
So in my current company, I'm not a pure technologist. I do a lot of the installs. Like I go to the hotels and do the install. So I know exactly how long it takes to put a beacon in, like one of the, to some of the stuff. I know exactly how long it takes to do this and do that. So I know exactly how to do it all. And uh, there isn't like, sure, I, there's probably little nuances of setting up the system. Not sure. There's absolutely things I don't know, but I know physically how to do everything. And because of that, I'm very, so early on in the business, if you do it, you'll understand it because there's, you have early on, you have an opportunity to do things that later on you just won't have the bandwidth to do. And so I've been really lucky as we've, as we've grown this thing is I've been able to systematically be in every phase of it to understand it. So I can talk, talk the talk and walk the talk and very comfortable. And I'm not BSing someone like I generally know, like that's going to work or not going to work. And, um, and that's helped us recently with some, some big deals lately is people say, you kind of actually really understand your business. And we actually appreciate it. Cause I walked into this one, this one place, this one customer, um, they're not a customer yet, but hopefully they will be. And it was set up and they had a ton of Motorola gear and ton of Motorola equipment. And, and, and they also had a command and control room that was just set up as a war room with tables, et cetera. And, uh, and I was like, this room is awesome. And she's like, you mean the room with all the TVs? Like, no, 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 not the TVs, not the monitors. I'm talking about this room. She's like, why are you, why are you, this, there's no technologist. I was like, it's about command and control. Your, your TVs and your monitors are just tools to bring in information. It's the people in the command and control rooms that are taking that information understanding. So they, so they set it up and it was set up very organized. And she goes, you're the only person that's ever picked that up. I was like, oh, okay. But that's, if you're going to run a command and control, you need to have, you need to, you need to be able to see those things. But that's, it's like that, my thinking which helps put me with my current company of like great technologists, but no one's going to outsmart me with how to run a battle plan of how to run an assault or, or how to do, um, or even just how to, how to help someone being, being harassed in, in a hotel. Like, like I've got the whole spectrum covered from that side. And then my tech thing has the whole thing covered. So I kind of digressed significantly from that. No, it's okay. The, the thing that comes to mind when you talk about learning the operations and doing installs and stuff, I would imagine that comes from your time in the teams where even as an officer, you were still required to probably have a basic proficiency with almost every aspect of the operation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, John Rodella, who was my AOIC in my, my last platoon, um, we just received digital digital cameras, which, by the way, is like this wasn't that standard. But this this was early on, and were uh, they on the three and a half inch floppy digital cameras? No. Oh, okay. Oh no, <laughs> it wasn't that old. <laughs> hey, I, I remember those. Uh, that's actually a good question. No, no, no. It was this the well, I, I should know this like the SIM card, small SIM card. Yeah, I, a micro SD card or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, we'll go with that but I'm sure that's what it is. So anyways, um, no, this, but, but it was, so John wasn't the comms guy, but he took it aside and he learned him, learned it and went aside. And so, so it was a good example. I was learning from people that are under like junior to me. of just watching how they took things to learn the specialty. So, so for, for, for my role with, as a, 
when I was running the teams with Mark, running the platoon with Mark, who was the Mark Crampton, who was the, the, the senior enlisted guy for the platoon chief, it's really all around planning, movement, how to get things in the right direction. So like we'd go over, I'd be, we were deployed on ships. So I'd fly over to the command and control ship and we do the plans and I'd radio over, here's the plan, here's a general mission, blah, blah, blah. And then sometimes literally I'd fly back and I have 30 minutes to do whatever, eat whatever, get jocked up and go. And so I needed to know, I needed to have my stuff already wired. So I literally have go bags for all my stuff. And so if I knew it was a, a direct action mission, this is what I'd, I'd grab this bag. If I had this, I'd go grab this bag. And so, so I had a couple holsters and each holster went in different bags. So sta- standard kit bags, but, um, but you really had to know your stuff because you were grabbing your stuff. You didn't have time to think about it. Like you had to know. And so, but sure, I knew how to do a small gas engine, but I wasn't the first tenant. So someone was accountable for that. And so Steph Bass is an example I talked about earlier, who's who's up for the Medal of Honor. Um, it, uh, we were having some problems with our engines and he hadn't been the first tenant before. I'm like, hey, Steph, like, uh, just figure it out. And, but it wasn't, because what we were having is we were we were jumping in and we were, we were having to, so we jump in with two Zodiacs and we'd bring a third motor in because our motors were just dying on us. I'm like, hey, we got to quit carrying this third motor. And it's like, we got to jump out. We got to have confidence. Our motors work. Can you, can he goes, I got it. He goes, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> and he figured it out. Like after that, all of a sudden our motors started working and we never had a problem. We dumped, we got rid of our third motor. We were, we were jumping in with, we, cause we, cause for, if you bring an extra motor, it means a lot scarier you're bringing for something else. So, um, it was just, I was really lucky to see these guys, that would just wouldn't necessarily have the skill set, but they'd figure it out. They would just figure it out. Um, so, but um, so back to original question, you had to be competent because while I wasn't in charge of the motors, if the motor went down, I better figure out how to get it going again. If um, so, like when I'd go on patrols, so my comms guy would walk behind me. And, um, and I, I, I sort of became the pack mule because when you're an officer, you're not shooting typically. So in all, all the drills, you're not shooting. So I just load myself up with, with six, with, uh, machine gun ammo, 60 ammo and 40 mic mics. And that my comms guy was pretty good at, at hitting things with the 40 mic mic on his, with his, um, and so he wouldn't always get up and move when he should, when we were doing contract drills. So I just learned that I got to, sometimes I got to look over and I'm picking him up and get him to move. So if I'm picking him up and move, I'll, I'll give him the equipment, the, the thing, because I knew that he could, he could typically hit stuff with his, with the 40 mic mic. So it's kind of this, you figure out where, where someone's good, really good. And you put them in that spot and where they, where they're not quite as good, you pick them up and help them move. But so it goes back to you learn people's strengths and weaknesses and, and let them excel where they're doing and you figure out how to help them or the place where they weren't quite as good. Um, but back to your original thing, you did have to learn everything because you couldn't delegate. Like on a ship, you could delegate a lot and not not really do everything. But as a platoon guy, you need to know everything from sticking people to IVs, et cetera. So um, you have to because you don't know when you're going to be on your own. But I would imagine when you're working with a, a small unit, so like your company today, mm-hmm. that builds in a whole lot of credibility 
when they know that you're somebody who's going to get in and get dirty with them, as opposed to just sitting back going, I'm the CEO, go do whatever. <laughs> they can walk anytime they want. Um, it's the least I could do for them. And, and, and if it means me, um, separate company, but putting bolts in the bag to help in a little plastic bag, I will do that. And when people don't recognize that that's going above and beyond and doing whatever it takes to help, then they're not the people to work with. But my team now, like I had someone say, Hey, you know, I, I feel bad. You're going like, you're going on this, you're going out there on your own to go do this. I'm like, are you kidding? You're out there. You're writing code. I can't do that. I can go do this. I can go do this, do this install. Like you need to f focus on what you're doing. Like I can't do that. I can do this. So, so what if I'm the CEO? Um, doing doing some of these installs it doesn't matter. We just got to get it done, and that's is a platoon, seal platoon. You just got to get it done. It doesn't matter. And I remember um, Johnny Utah. His first name's really Chris, and we were on a patrol. I talked about this once. We were on a patrol, and this is a this was a practice patrol, and um, and we're, we're walking along, and he he does the the signal the rally up. And this was early on when we first started working together, and I remember getting my panties in the bunch. And I was like. And my son was like, hey, hey, you can't say that. That's my job to say that. I'm like, and afterwards, I was like, what the hell? What a jackass I was. Like, why am I the guy in charge? Why can't, if he if he has a question, why can't he call him up and rally him? Like, absolutely. So just because I was a senior guy doesn't mean I'm all knowing. I see everything. Because the guy at the, at the rear is going to see something I'm not going to see. Or, or, Johnny is going to see something up front. Like, so early on, I realized I got to get out of my own way because they're going to see something different. They're going to do something else. And I mean, became so. And you need to, you need to instill that confidence in your team that when they do see something that maybe you haven't seen yet, they have the confidence and the security to know, Hey, I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to bring up something because you're going to value what I'm seeing that maybe you don't see. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I pretty, pretty easy in the, in the platoon. It's like, Hey, someone's going to shoot you. <laughs> you better figure it out. Cause you, cause it, you definitely know, uh, a team, B team. And if you're on the A team, B team's coming after you. And so it becomes very defined on what the mission is. And so, where I think it gets interesting is in the corporate world, it's not as defined. And so I think people become a little more, a little more self-interest. Um, I think most CEOs, most C-level people are narcissists because I think in corporate America, you kind of have to be, at least my professors told me there's dad on that. So I'm going to assume it's true. But professors I, never lie. Right. But I think, yeah, <laughs> but I, but I think, I think you kind of have to be, um, because why would you want to take that responsibility? Like you have to like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO. But I think, I think when you can really get away from it and recognize, oh, you're just the guy dumb enough or the, the guy or gal dumb enough to volunteer for that role, but it has nothing to do with you. It's really around protecting the team so they can go off and do whatever it takes. Um, so, and I, and I know I'll never be able to repay the people around me for what they've given me. That, that includes Steph Bass or, 
Chris Browning or John Rudella or Mark Crampton for my, for my time in the teams or Monty or John Mormon or others um, to people who work with IBM to my current team now. Like I'll never be able to repay people for what they've given me. So well, and I'll never forget that. So I asked you the question of while you were in and the motivation being to get out and I asked, were you, were you always kind of looking over the fence and feeling like you were missing out on something? The flip question to that, once you were out, how was your transition and did you ever struggle with, uh, I made the wrong decision. I want to be back in. Um, I knew when I got out, I needed to get either get all the way for me, all the way out or all the way in. And so when I left, I didn't talk to anyone from the teams. Like I, like I would, I didn't say a word to anyone. I was like, see ya. And went and focused on that. So there was really a never, never an avenue. It wasn't like the door was right there. And and in hindsight, I could have gotten, like the door was there uh, and it was always there. um, But I just ignored it. Um, Didn't, so the teams you're gone a lot. Um, you see some really cool things. So you go to some really interesting places. Um, you're exposed to some really great experiences. Um, and you're not always liked. I remember, I remember standing tall in front of, uh, admirals and generals like, like Hey, you guys can't like, we do some training stuff and someone will get hurt from the, like the op four or something like that. Hey, you guys gotta be nicer. You can't, can't be doing that. And, uh, and I'm like, all right, sir. And then I'd go back, back and I'd tell my guys, Hey, yeah, everything's good. Cause I wouldn't go back. Cause I didn't, I didn't want them. Cause what ended up happening was a couple of times we do ship takedowns, et cetera. And someone will get hurt. And, but I didn't want them to go any gentler because when you do it for real, it's not going to be gentle. And, um, and so there's this kind of, you get, you just kind of take, you got to take it on the chin on a lot of stuff, you got to figure out what's really relevant. And so a lot of stuff you just, as a CEO, you just have to own. And people talk, oh, it's lonely being CEO. Nah, if it's lonely, then you're a jackass. Because your teammates are right there side by side. And you leverage them, what they do. At the same time, they're, cover, they're, they're doing all the stuff that you can't do and eating all the crap, the stuff they don't tell you what's going on, what's bad, and they solve it. Well, you need to do the same thing for them and not pass it down. It doesn't matter if you're in the teams or wherever else. Like you got to protect your team as much as you can. And um, so, but grateful for everyone I've worked with. So even the jerks, because they've taught me something too. You mentioned it previously about the the availability of space or the availability of opportunities in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. as it relates to veterans. So that's where I'd like to start talking is. Your advice for somebody who's about to make their transition and maybe give us a a sales pitch, so to speak, of what opportunities there are in the hospitality space that maybe somebody's not already thinking about or anything else related to that transition and opportunities afterwards. Yeah, I actually really appreciate you bringing this part up because this might be the most important part. Um, And as I was thinking about this, this is probably the most important part of the message I want to deliver. So we go back to what I learned from John Paul Tahorio, the guy from uh, Patron and uh, Paul Mitchell Haircare. Learn language. So if you're transitioning to something after, out of law enforcement or the military, you've got to learn language of what you're doing. So, and, so as a Navy SEAL, you go through a lot of training before you get into platoon. 
And a lot sometimes you start out like before you start shooting, you're carrying a two by four to practice movement. Like that's how basic you start, and then you start walking, like you crawl, walk, run, the same. And so if you think you're going to transition from from the military or, the, or law enforcement and go right into an executive level job, you're smoking a crack pipe. Like, why would they hire you? Like, you've got to learn language. So the first part is learn the language. And so, um, but then the transition. So there's a couple of programs that I work with. And one is called the Honor Foundation. And I, I used to do a lot of work with them. I don't do much now. But what it is, it helps special operations men and women transition from the from the military. So it's Green Berets, um, SEALs, but it's also the people that were not necessarily wearing wearing a trident, but it was all the tech folks, et cetera, which again, all part of the team. Like, and you're a jerk if you don't recognize they're all part of the team and all very important. And the first guy kicking in the door couldn't do his couldn't do his job without everyone else support him. All part of the team. Um, so they all go through the honor foundation. They had the opportunity to go through the honor foundation. Um, and a big, big part of the cash comes from the, comes from the Navy SEAL foundation, et cetera, to help sponsor that. So there's all these programs that are help supporting these transition programs now, which are really important. But what those programs are good at doing is helping you find your why and helping you find your focus on what you want to get into. They don't teach you the language, like from my lesson from Paul Mitchell or from JP, they don't teach you the, teach you language. So then, so in hospitality, there's a there's a pretty big labor shortage, and Chip Rogers, who's the um, president and CEO of American Hotel Lodge Association, I uh, kept hearing him talk about. And this goes back to what I said earlier about you got to put yourself in the environment, like who's buying and what are they doing, and, and be networked in. So I, I've been bumping into Chip now for probably about four years now, and just um, we see each other a couple times a year. But I kept hearing him talk about, hey, we got a problem. And we've talked about child trafficking and some other things that there were issues. And lots of people can throw support in child into the child trafficking, which um, but I and, and I volunteered, but I couldn't deliver a lot of that. I couldn't deliver something unique. But I kept hearing about this labor issue. And and so I kept hearing people talk about it. They were basically just repackaging the same people. Like, because people hospitality is kind of a very small network, like Incestuous is not the right word, but very small group. Like you kind of, if you're not in it, you don't know about it. And, um, and it's kind of hard to break in and not because they're, there any reason, just because no one really thinks about it. Like everyone thinks about ha- um, the housekeeper when you think about hospitality. Well, there's lots of other jobs, like housekeeping, very important job, like absolutely important, um, which is kind of the reason why we, why I've kind of stepped in to help my product helps protect them. Um, because usually housekeepers don't have a, a good voice. So we want to help give them a voice. So if someone's harassed or something else, they have a voice. So, but, but going and learning the language. And so now the transition program, getting back to full circle, Chip kept talking about her other people. Hey, we have this labor issue. And so, and, and, and I'm surprised and I'm, I don't know if I'm mortified or surprised or else, but I didn't realize that, Hey, I, I have this network over here, this group called the honor foundation and these other tap programs to help people transition. And then I was also um, knew no the former CEO of Burger King, but it wasn't because we're CEO CEO. It just happened to me. His name happens to be Jeff also. Um, but we met on some other stuff here in San Diego, and we just started talking about. It, and he was in charge of at the time. He was he was the guy leading the the person leading the program at San Diego State for the hospitality school. And I was like, wait a minute. That's the same thing as I went through at University of San Diego, supply chain guy. 
let's get the Honor Foundation folks, men and women, and put them to the Spain Pain School of Hospitality if they want to. Or, and it's not just THF is kind of as programs all over the place, but most of the programs online, so they can learn language. And so we did an announcement, we did a panel not too long ago here in San Diego, talked about that, talked about the Honor Foundation's transition program, going through the, the um, San Diego State's hospitality program, and then help learn learning the language to then transition into hospitality. And so it doesn't matter if you're in law enforcement or or any part of the military, if you're getting out, you, anyone go to these go to these hospitality programs and then help transition because hospitality needs needs talent. And people don't often think about talent. And so and and hospitality is really is really unique. It's hard to explain to people how how it all works, but you have the big brands, which is Hyatt, Hilton, and Marriott. They don't own the companies. Most of them they don't. Like they may manage a few of them. They own very few of the properties, if any. They may manage a few of them, but then you have these management companies that actually manage it, and then you have these ownership groups. And they're all very fragmented. And so, but they, but they all kind of know each other. But in all these things, there's all these different groups to manage these different things, to manage the, the properties or, or do anything else. So there's, there's lots of opportunities out there to do anything. Um, and I also have a lot of respect for the group because um, hospitality is a group called LAHOA. I'm going to get the name right. Asian American something. I, I should remember. Oh, sorry. Didn't get it right. <laughs> but, um, but most of the, many of the people there are, that are part of AHOA are second, now second generation um, hoteliers. So their parents came, many of their parents came from other countries, came in, started a hotel. And the kids that were brought up, they'd go to school. They'd come home, they'd clean the hotel rooms, then they'd go do their homework, and they'd go to bed, and they'd go to school the next day. Go to school, come home, clean the rooms at the hotels, and do their homework, go to bed, start the day all over, and then weekends are it's like like I don't want to say it's a hard life, but it's 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 a life where you learn the business. And so now you see the second and third generation folks who who are now kind of having a better life than their parents did, but their parents gave this opportunity so for them to thrive. And so hospitality is hard. Like it's hard work. Like, but anything's hard. Um, but I have a ton of respect for people that come here and kind of start with nothing and grind it out. Or anyone starts a business, grind out. Like starting a business is really hard, way harder than than working for a big company. A lot more risk. Um, like if anyone says they want to be an entrepreneur, I was like, don't do it. Go work for IBM, go work for something else. Um, because the risk is just too high. Cause as a, as a startup, you're picking on one product or one solution. And if it fails, then it fails. And there's a, there's a reason why startups fail. The rate is so high. And it's not because the person, but you think about work for a big company, you can work on five different projects and two of them may fail, but you're still working on three. So you don't realize that the two projects that failed is the equivalent of a startup and it goes away. So at a, at a company, big company, you just start another project, but a startup, Oh crap, what do you do? So you got to really make sure that that project is going to go through and work all the way through. And so, um, so back to original thing, transition, learn language, find a way to help you learn language and go hang out with, in the same area digitally and, and physically 
when I say digitally, online, um, and then physically at these at the things to start networking and figuring out how you can help solve a problem differently. So I kept hearing Chip talk about, Chip Rogers talk about his labor issues. And I'm like, oh, hey, Honor Foundation. It's that transition program I wish I had when I was, when I got out doing great things to help people transition. Not everyone knows what they want to do, but they're being, they're figuring out why. And then we can put the two together, the educational language and put together. And so, and that, and so again, San Diego State and other hospitality programs are available to anyone you start learning the language and you start and you start working on the transition and get and put yourself put yourself where the audience who wants to hire you that you want to be hired by you got to go put yourself in front of them you've obviously had the opportunity to to put yourself in different situations different environments professionally from a business standpoint and you mentioned networking and putting for somebody who's looking to transition putting themselves in that environment start learning the language from your experience most times are they accepting of, and I'll, I'll loosely call them outsiders just coming in, trying to get their foot in, as you said earlier, trying to get their face and their name known. Absolutely not. Never is. Um, and twofold. Um, cause when you're transitioning, you're always a little nervous. You always kind of doubt yourself. You should doubt yourself. If you don't, then, then you probably have a big blind spot recognizing you're probably a jerk. You're not self-aware that like you come across a jerk, um, but people already have their established groups, and so I, I made the comment about that when I talk about transition program when I was on stage, and I said, "Hey, hey, folks in hospitality, when you when we look at these these people that are transitioning, please remember it's hard to get in, and and please be open to them." And Chip kind of made a joke when I was getting off stage. He's like, oh, I think, I forget exactly what it was, but he's like, he basically said that we're not friendly. It was basically, I, <laughs> I kind of laughed. I was like, no, actually, hospitality people were pretty friendly, but it's hard to break into groups. And so you can't take it personally. Like, you just got to keep showing up. And that's in, that's in everything. I mean, you need to be genuine, too. So, like, with my current company, I was not a hospitality guy. Um, but I just kept going and showing up and just kept showing my face and kept figuring out what else can I do to help. When you say going and showing my face, where were you going? Trade shows. I'd go to the smaller events, not the big trade shows. Like the big trade shows, you're just a dime a dozen. So, um, but going to trade shows, going to smaller events. So American Hotel Lodge Association has these on the road events. If, if we're talking about hospitality in particular, and so there's one in San Diego. There's one just recently in San Diego, and the California Hotel Lodge Association shows up. Lynn Morefield from there shows up, and it's kind of like giving kind of the state of the nation what's going on. And, and I'd go to different. I went to the one in Arizona, and uh, just different programs. And I'd go to the larger trade shows, but I kept showing up. Every time I saw Chip, I was like, "Hey, Chip, how are you doing?" To eventually he started recognizing, "Hey, I, 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 I know you." Like, yes, you do. And so, damn, you're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> and uh, and people on his team, and then I, and then I recognized, and I finally started figuring out how does AHLA fit into the big picture, um, because tactically they're not as great for starting a business. Um, strategically, very good. So, and everyone, anyone's listening to this probably say, what are you talking about? Like, they can't help you get business. They, they can and they can't. But but it was the the California Hotel Lodge Association where I started doing events, where I started showing up and started getting, and, and I just started showing up. So, 
the senior leaderships. And I was just in an event where there was like 43 of us and it was all practitioners um, from um, the big brands and the big management companies and myself and Motorola. So we had to pay, we had to pay to get in. Everyone else doesn't, but you basically pay to sit in the same room as them and you just, but you got to show up. And so some, you have to, sometimes you have to pay to get in and force your way in because they're, um, you just have to show up. One, one time I was selling, back up, one time I was selling the National Guard and I was in San Diego and the National Guard, the person I was selling to was in, was in DC and I needed to move the deal along and, I, and I'm not, I'm not a sales guy. Let me just, let me say, I struggle with sales, even though that's what I do. Um, and I kept calling the guy, we we're close to a deal and I was like, oh, gosh, I, I don't know how to get to him. But literally he smoked. And so I literally flew out there and the hotel was literally across the parking lot. I literally sat in the parking lot and waited for him to come out and have a cigarette. And I walked up and was like, Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm here for something else. Like literally I flew there just to bump into him. And then I got a meeting and he was like, Hey, can you come on up? I'm like, sure can. Also, can I come at one? This was like at 10 o'clock, but you've got to just keep pushing it. Keep pushing it. And there's another deal that I'm working right now where I, where I just keep pushing it to, to make sure I'm front and center because I, I know we're the right thing. I know they want us, but everyone's so busy. They can't get everything done. So you just got to keep showing up. You got to put yourself where it is. And, uh, and if you think it's about you, then you're wrong. It's always about serving everyone else. So and that's why I do work with the Honor Foundation because it's that program that I wish I had in helping serve them, help find the placement and working with, and Jeff Campbell introduced me to the San Diego State Hospitality Program. It's there as a, as a professor, they're serving others to help them be successful. But connecting these people that want to help serve for people that have a need, being the men and women that are transitioning. And then you have this, and then you find this other need from hospitality needing, needing good labor or needing good workers or people to solve a need. So you kind of like problem solving this problem, problem solving this problem. So it's, that's, that's the thing that I appreciated because I would not have figured that out with American Hotel Lodge Association, um, which again, tactically, I haven't gotten any business really from them, but it's open doors for me to help solve things for others, which will then build street cred for other things down the road, which by the way is kind of, I don't talk about, I just gave away some trade secrets is you just got to show up and help people. Eventually they're going to start saying, Hey, this guy's always showing up and always trying to help. That's great. Appreciate it. Which then again, I just remind myself I'm late on helping someone else, something else. So, so um, anyways, it, but she just got to show up. So, hopefully, I answer your question about long winded answer about the, uh, the the transition program from which includes the in hospitality from THF to paying school to learn language to solving the hospitality house. And you brought up some some points that I've heard other people say, and and it's it's one of those things that. It can be repeated often, but it's it's always valuable. And the first thing you said was be genuine in your networking, but also be willing to help someone. And and ultimately it comes back around to don't just expect somebody to give you something just because of what you used to do. And I think unfortunately for a lot of the the men and women who come from both of our lines of work, they think what they used to do is the key to the door in the sense that well, all I got to do is get in the door and then I'm golden. Yeah, you nailed it. 
Um, I remember, uh, I remember when I first started working at IBM. First day, plugged in my laptop, and I got three emails. And I'm like, huh, I don't know what to do. And I, I, I didn't have enough work, and so I was kind of like, what do I do? Like, how do I stand out? And so I, I remember I started using humor to kind of help me cope. And making, there were probably some really dumb jokes, but just, they weren't inappropriate, but just, just, but it was just kind of my code. So not teen jokes. No. <laughs> no. Oh gosh. Because no. I imagine those go over great in corporate America. <laughs> uh, so I was, so I met Channing Tatum once, uh, Magic Mike, and um, we were at, we were at an event, it was an all team guy event. This is kind of an example. And uh, I walked up to him. And so it was funny because all the team guys were like, oh, that's Channing Tatum. I'm not going to go talk to him. And all the women were like, that's Channing Tatum. <laughs> like, so when I walked in there, so like, so, and it was funny because we were, it was kind of in this dirt parking lot. There's porta potties, like not elegant at all. And, um, and so we go to check in and ladies, <laughs> ladies were checking us in. It happened to be ladies checking us in and they're like, hey, Jane Tatum's in the bathroom. And I look over, I'm like, in the porta potty? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so, 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 and, and, and so, so some of the, some I'm of the, picturing just a gaggle of women standing outside a porta potty. No, no, actually. So it was funny. All the, all the guys are like looking away. It was almost like, oh, we're not looking over that way. And, and, and all the women were being very respectful. And, um, and so Channing's there, and I'm like, no one's really talking to the guy. So I, so I walked up to him and, and I didn't mean to say it this way. And by the way, it was only because of the environment that I was able to get away with saying it this way. I was like, what the are you doing here? Like not trying to be disrespectful, but, but talk to him like team guys talk to each other. Like if, if every, every fourth word is not a four letter word, you're spoken in broken English. Like you're speaking in broken English. Like it's just like, just, there's just this, very appropriate in the, in the space, but very inappropriate in other spaces. So sometimes I have to remind myself, like, get out of that mindset. And so sometimes my team now hears me kind of like get, like, I start speaking like a little bit like a sailor and I'm, I'm getting better at it. So, um, but, but to his credit, he was like, and by the way, if I'd done that in the street, he would just kept walking and his, and his bodyguards were else would have like pushed me down. I remember meeting Damon John one time, I think that's the name. I tried to walk up to him in a trade show and his bodyguard's like, get out of here. <laughs> I'm like, guess that was not going to work. And, and, and it's funny. I don't know if I'd met Channing before that, but anyway, so we started having this conversation. I was like, what are you doing here? And he's explaining. I was like, no, no, no. What are you doing here? And he kind of went, oh, and I was like, dude, you've got real money and you can hang out with real people. We're just a bunch of broken people with hearing aids. And you know, he goes like, and, and his comment to me was interesting because he goes, no, no, no. I'm just an actor. I play people, but you guys have done real work. I said, I'll trade your bank account anytime you want. But it's 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 all perspective and um, of kind of what's the other thing. But I, I don't know why I digress. But I, I thought it was really interesting talking to Channing Tatum and hearing his perspective. And I kind of chuckled. I was like, if, back to the point, if it had been on the street, I would have never talked to him. I would never, never gotten bitter. I would have never said it in the way I said it just because, because I was in the mindset. I was already there, but I also appreciate that even though everyone else wasn't doing it, I went up there because interesting guy, like 
what's he doing there? It's out of place. Same thing with my conversation with JP, like very billionaire at the time. Like what's he doing hanging around uh training command? Like, what does he know that I can ask this question that I can get myself smarter? So I learned something from talking to Channing. I learned something talking to JP. I was just, and I didn't realize, but I was creating opportunities just to learn to get smarter. It goes back to the networking thing. You just got to go there and start listening, start talking and figuring out how can you drive value? It goes back to the education thing. Hospitality has a labor issue. Oh, I got, I think I have a way to solve that. We talked about the human trafficking thing. Like I don't have a unique way to really solve it. I do, but it's down the road. Like we absolutely do have a way to solve it, but the market's not ready to hear it yet. Um, so we'll just keep it hidden away until they're ready to hear it. But so as these things pop up, you just start putting them in play. And that's one thing I appreciate about my current team is we have a bunch of stuff that's in the, it's in the drawers that we're just waiting to bring out. And so when we do it, look, here it is. And so they're just, they're just always so far ahead in many ways than the market is. And that's what you need to do is you need to put a product out that's good now, but can, that you can keep growing into that was the market adapts as the market grows matures, you can do that. Cause like my first startup was we came out of IBM, we did an e-procurement um, contract management company. And we crashed and burned. And uh, and I just signed a contract for a contract management tool that was exactly as we envisioned 20 years ago. And I was like, oh, I get this exactly. And that company's thriving now, thriving. So sometimes you bring stuff in the market, she's not ready to do yet. Great idea and all this stuff, great tech, she's not ready to do. So the other thing I just learned is everything you bring to the table, people may not be ready for. So you just have to go listen and be responsive and help. And eventually your time will be right. So I appreciate your insights and I appreciate your advice. If anybody's got any questions that we haven't addressed, can they reach out to you directly? Sure. Of course. I'll put your contact information in the show notes. Yep. Great. L LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Um, it's a good place to find me. So I, I think where, and I, and I'll just for full clarity, I'm really swamped right now. Really swamped. I'm, and by the way, I'm glad we're doing this on Saturday because otherwise it would not have happened. And, uh, um, but uh, always, always trying to help with, with transition programs. And so I think if, if there's an interest, if I can come talk to a larger group that allows me to knock out multiple, multiple people at once. Um, it's kind of what I've done with the honor foundation. So I've kind of shifting my priorities and the hospitality. So I try and do big, big groups, larger groups, reach larger audiences. So it's not just a, a one-off. Um, because I can, I'm, I'm really limited on time right now. So I'm trying to be as efficient, as effective I can so that I can talk to larger groups, talk to groups. And then afterwards, two of the people pull me aside and great. So, and I have cups of coffee with people, et cetera. It's just, it's just hard, but I never, if I don't respond to someone, I do not want them to take it personally. I'm just trying to get to everything. And I am very, um, empathetic to people that are going through transitions. I've gone through multiple of them. So they're tough. You just got to believe in yourself when you don't want to believe in yourself. And it's really tough. But of course, if I can help someone, absolutely want to do that. Absolutely want to do that. And so I've had, I've lost too many people in my life where I'm like, gosh, I wonder if I could help them. So, and that's kind of, that's why I joined the military indirectly. I think it's brought is always trying to serve others and trying to help them in the transition. Cause these transitions are hard. They're really hard. And, uh, and people say, well, it's because of the military. No, transitions are just hard. It's like trying to get into a new group we talked about earlier. It's just hard. So you just got to figure out, you just got to keep showing up and say it's, it's okay. Uh, so of course, if I can help, absolutely. 
So if there's a group, larger group that I want to come talk, no problem. Um, just I'm, I'm tied on time and, but I, and I want to help everyone because that's the value we bring. Well, again, thank you for your time. I've got to get to an event with Channing Tatum. So <laughs> thank you again, though. I tell appreciate I, it. Tell him I said hi. <laughs> I appreciate you watching, but before you go, if you like the video, please hit that subscribe button. Also, any comments are appreciated. Thank you.